the Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. All right. We are here with uh, Dr. Goswami. Thank you very much for doing this. I, r- I really appreciate it. Um, I've seen a lot of your videos online. I read a lot of your, your work, and it is some very, very fascinating and, for a person as dumb as I am, confusing stuff. The idea of quantum mechanics and the, just when someone uses the word quantum, do you find that a lot of folks, their just eyes glaze over? Well, not anymore because, you know, the most complex, one of the most complex concepts of quantum physics is quantum leap. It's a discontinuous transition. And that gives an idea of how foreign it is to a mind which thinks in the Newtonian fashion. You know, motion is continuous and quantum leap is discontinuous. But it's used everywhere today. Everybody knows, well, right. you know, if anything unusual happens, people say, took a quantum leap. So that has a... What do they mean by that? I think they just mean like a big jump. I think they just mean a big jump. Yeah, if I don't... they knew that it's a discontinuous jump, they probably would hesitate. <laughs> what, is I... that, what does that exactly mean by a discontinuous jump? Well, um, I have to go back a little. Okay. Uh, so think of electrons going around the atomic nucleus in an atom. Okay. Uh, when electrons jump from one of these orbits to another orbit, it does not go through the intervening space. However much surprising to your rational mind that is, just suspend your disbelief. Imagine that the electron is here and then the electron is there in the other orbit. Nothing in between in space and time. Nothing so they in just some sort of another, they, te- they teleport themselves or are yeah, teleported. Teleport, that's it. I mean, it, you know, science fiction language captures it a little bit. But where do they go in between? We have to say that uh, they go to the domain of possibility. That's what quantum physics brings, that uh, reality, which it seems to be just this one space-time reality that we call nature. Mm -hmm. That is not true. There is another reality which must be called supernature, transcendent reality. Just like the spiritual traditions are saying, just like the psychologists are saying in the turn of the century, uh, 19th century, Freud discovered the concept of unconscious. Unconscious, conscious, two levels of reality. The spiritual traditions are transcendent, immanent. Again, two levels of reality. Quantum physics in the 20th century, in the year 1925-26, discovered the same thing. Three times the charm. This time we better observe the idea and learn to live with it. There are two levels of our reality. Quantum physics says one level is level of possibility, where everything is possibility. Nothing concrete, no thing, no thingness. And then this level of reality where we, of course, live, where we find things manifest, where things look like they're particles, objects, concrete, solid, liquid, gases, all these are concrete objects. We have become used to them as concrete objects. But they begin as possibilities in a transcendent So. To break it down for the layperson, essentially the lowest form or the smallest form of the universe that we can measure when we get to subatomic particles, when we can look at subatomic particles, they defy the laws of physics, they exist in the same space at the same time in two different places, they can be both moving and still, and they can teleport themselves. 
But so, you, you made it a little more complex than it actually is. It's less complex than it's that? It's less complex than that. Wow. Because uh, we have to realize these objects can be shown to be at two places at the same time, but only in possibility. <laughs> no, but That's, that should simplify. I, you have to think about it. I can't. As I'm trying. Part, I just broke my brain. <laughs> of course, of course, because the word possibility is not familiar to you. This is why we did, you know, a couple of hours to right, dance yeah. around these ideas yes. because, you know, they're a little bit strange. What is possibility? But we know what possibility is. Right. Possibilities are things that glimpse at us, but nothing that we can put our finger to it, that right. it is this. So like it may become fact, but right now it's just an idea. Right now it's just an idea. So it, it, it begins with our <clears throat> reality begins with uh, these possibilities, uh, possibility of an electron being anywhere in the room. Our knowledge is limited. We only know that it's possible to find the electron here, there, at the ceiling, maybe at right here where I am, but we don't know where it actually will be if I try to see it, try to measure it, try to observe it. And uh, that's the second domain. Second domain is domain of manifestation. When an observer tries to measure where the electron is, the observer will find it at a definite place as a particle. That's the manifest reality. So something that is a wave of possibility, being having the capacity of being everywhere, with our measurement becomes a concrete object that we can say, well, it's a thing. There it is at a definite place. So by only by measuring it, it only becomes a Only by observing it, measuring it, um, only by... That's a very hard thing to understand. It is very hard thing to understand. So, but isn't... Uh, if, if you're measuring it and that's when it becomes uh, a concrete object, isn't it just assuming it wasn't a concrete object before you measured it well, and that it's always a concrete object? That's the thing. But you hadn't measured it before? That's the thing. Today we have a new era of physics in which we can propose something which we cannot actually see. But the consequence, don't no, listen to this. I joke. am, please. But the consequences of it can be seen. So our theories are so good that what we uh, visualize as theory, the consequences of it is predicted so very well that we got to believe the theory. There's no choice because the consequences are predicted like one part in 100 million to that kind of accuracy. Mm -hmm. So this is a kind of theory that just boggles your mind. We've never had the capacity of predicting something this accurately. So when the picture says that, well, they start as possibility and then they become actuality, we have no option but to accept it. Although I agree with you, it, 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 it sounds strange. I mean, anytime you're talking about supernature, most people would say, oh, you are in Uland, but you are not in Uland. We are in quantum reality. That's well, quantum right. reality is Uland. It's just also <laughs> real. That's it is also real. The, 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 the thing that people need to, uh, I mean, I've had a really hard time digesting any of this stuff, but the thing that people need to uh, look at first, I think, is the idea of superposition. The idea that w what you were saying, the idea that they have measured things both moving and still at the same time, and they have shown that things can leap from one place to another. So our real reality, as far as science as far as like accepted pretty much universally right there's no there's no debate in the scientific community about 
the the movement of of subatomic particles, right? Movement of subatomic particles involving discontinuity. There is no debate. So that becomes tables. That becomes Dr. Goswami. That becomes the laptop. That's that is a real trippy thing to try to wrap your head around. Real trippy thing. That when you go, the smaller you go, the more it becomes magic. It becomes it becomes something that doesn't exist in in, in our rational world. Uh, it, it, it's even more intriguing than that. Let me claim the full claim of quantum physics. It's not only saying that the smaller you go, but the plot thickens when you realize that the reality at the macro scale is made of the small things. So, of course, the effect is visible, much more easily measured in this for the small things. But when the small things make big things, as you said, microphones and you and me, our body, that is, they're all quantum objects. So we also, when nobody is observing us, including ourselves, like when we sleep, deep sleep, nobody is observing me. Where am I? I am only a possibility. The only reason I can, I can find myself in the same bed every night when I wake up. The only reason for that is that because I'm a macro object, my wave of possibility, although it expands a little, just as all waves must expand, you have seen water wave expanding, you know, you know if you throw a pebble, of, uh, pebble in a wa- pond of water, the water waves will expand, right? Same thing happens with waves of possibility. We do tend to expand when, as soon as you go to sleep as a wave of possibility, but the waves are so sluggish for macro objects. For me to move substantial distance that somebody can discern it, it will take the age of the universe. So we don't discern it. It moves like 10 to the minus 16 centimeter. But today with laser beams, we can actually measure such small distances that these macro objects, even macro objects, move. While Newtonian physics would say, no, no, they are at rest. Whereas our common sense would say, no, no, they are not moving. But with laser beam, we can actually measure that between your looking and my looking, just split second, objects actually moves, which appear to be stationary uh, to the normal eye. So we live in a very, very, very wonderfully uh, creative world. Why creative? Because this movement also suggests something fantastic, that there are new possibilities. And if we could capture those new possibilities and make them manifest, that's the explanation of creativity. So this, what you're saying is that objects like this desk are not in fact still, but are slightly moving all the they time. They're slightly moving all the time. And what is the number that they're moving? How well, far? It, it, it's very small. The center of mass of this table, for example, is it's pretty massive, probably moving about 10 to the minus 18 centimeters in a discernible time, like a minute or two. So it just sort of moves back and forth and back. So the whole world, we really do live in like a hologram. Well, hologram is not always a good metaphor, but it is for this case because, you know, the objects can appear in more than one place in that sense. Hologram, the information appears everywhere on the hologram. So uh, these objects carry information which is in more than one place. Potentially, it is more than one one place. This is why we say that we have discovered a new world of potential from which 
our ordinary reality is created. So ordinary reality is not as fixed as we thought it was. If you allow the objects to go more and more in the quantum domain, in the realm of expansion into new possibility that where it has not expanded before, not so much with tables and chairs, mind you, but with our thoughts, with our feelings, then we can really get into creativity. So, so how would you do that? How do you go into the quantum domain with your creativity? Well, that's when then I have to talk to you about the creative process. If you look at the creative process, creativity researchers have found that there are uh, four stages. The first stage, everybody knows, preparation. That just, I read up, I talk with you, I get some knowledge from picking your brain, I listen to a teacher, I um, listen to audios, videos, internet, of course, and get some knowledge about the subject. And then creativity researchers find a very strange thing happens. The most creative people, they are not just doing preparation. They also sit quietly and do nothing. They really sit quietly and do nothing. They call it the period of incubation, like a bird sits on an egg doing nothing. See, imagine, it was a tremendous surprise. Nobody understood why do we need to sit down. You know, creativity, after all, is action. Why do we need to sit down quietly? Why do you need to do nothing? And then quantum physics came along, and we realized that in between our thinking, these objects, thoughts, they are possibilities of meaning. They're waves. So like all waves, I was talking about the water wave before. If you throw a pebble in a pond, the water waves will expand as expanding crest lines. So same thing happens with the thoughts. They expand in meaning, become waves of multiple meaning, possibilities of multiple meaning, multiple meaning, expanding, expanding, expanding. The more they expand, the more meaning this packet of possibility will contain. And so you have a better idea, better possibility, better probability of, of capturing a new meaning. Because if you have a bigger possibility pool to choose from, obviously your chance of being creative is greater. This is the idea that has explained how creativity comes to us. Then when the actual uh, answer appears, the new meaning that we are seeking, when it appears in the pool and when I see the gestalt of all the new meanings that will give answer to my problem, then I pick it, then I choose it. Still in the unconscious. That's where my causal power of creativity lies, still in the unconscious. But now it becomes conscious with a homo. This is the quantum leap, a discontinuous change from possibility into actuality. So I actually captured the new thought, Joe. I actually captured the new thought, and, and that's so surprising because it's new. Creativity researchers call it aha insight. You have heard of aha. So the idea is that the imagination is a quantum realm. Imagination takes us to the realm of possibility. If we can do it from conscious into the unconscious. Conscious imagination is still a stepping stone to the doing of possibility. But if we imagine consciously, that is like stoking the unconscious that eventually gets onto the unconscious. And this is where things have this capacity of propagating, expanding, wave-like becoming bigger and bigger pools of possibility for consciousness to choose from. And when we choose, a new possibility might arise or a whole combination of new possibilities might arise which will contain the answer 
to my question. That's a very interesting way to break down creativity that I've never heard before. Absolutely. This is, um, although it's not that old, I first wrote a paper on it in 1988. So, But you know how right. uh, communication is today. It's very complex because there is too much of it. But it, it, is a, it is a fantastic theory that explains all the aspects of creativity theory, creativity experiments, creativity data. Um, the other theories are just inadequate to explain the creative process. As I said, it's very mysterious. I mm. call it the do-be-do-be-do process because you need to do, but you also need to be doing nothing. To create. To create. The, yeah, the creation process has always been fascinating to me, and I, I've been saying this for a while that I think we, we don't understand. We have the idea of the imagination of what's in the mind as being just, oh, pretend, make-believe, daydreaming. Like that, those, those things come to mind when we think of imagination, but everything physical that exists was created in the imagination. Like the imagination is a machine for creating cities. The imagination created nuclear power. The imagination created satellites. I mean, these are all because of the imagination. Without the human imagination, there would be nothing. Well, yes, and, and now... But yeah, we look at it frivolously. Uh, but, but quantum physics is taking us a little bit further. Than mm. this. I mean, it, it, imagination is a good starting point, as I said. But imagination is still in our conscious thought. So um, we have to understand that when we have conscious thoughts of imagination... Then we are proposing the unconscious to look at new stuff, process new stuff. This is what we are doing. What imagination takes us is from ordinary reality, mundane reality, that are familiar stuff. Imagination is a in-between, half step beyond that. It's, it's imagination. It's, it's not going to confirm to the, to the mundane stuff necessarily. Right? Mm -hmm. We can imagine very arbitrary stuff. So what it does, it starts a beginning of a thought process where thoughts can become more and more and more and more weird and more and more, more and more new, but they are no longer it's no longer possible to process them in the conscious because in the conscious, we just cannot do it. We don't have the capacity. We are still limited by what we know. The known imposes too much constraint on what we can imagine in the domain of the unknown. But as soon as it gets into the unconscious, unconscious stuff, more we imagine, the imaginary stuff will interact with other imaginary stuff, the thoughts will mix, and this mixing waves together will produce patterns of what we call patterns of interference of waves. You were mentioning superposition, waves superpose, and creating many, many more new possibilities than before. And one of these possibilities may very well be brand new that never has been manifested before. So it's always a mystery. How do we go from the known into the unknown? The way we go is this taking advantage of what we call quantum thinking. Thinking where we take advantage of the quantum domain, the domain of possibility, where uh, possibility interacting with possibility creates up completely new stuff that has never manifested before. I've heard you say that you believe that consciousness is non-local. Right. What do you mean by that? Well, if discontinuity, see, you are already familiar with discontinuity. Now you want to know even the most, most unfamiliar, most intriguing. You know, this is, this is like voodoo. 
this is really like voodoo. <laughs> this, we're now getting into real cracks of the most surprising thing in quantum physics. That surprised even Einstein. Einstein in his whole life could not believe this concept of non-locality, which he himself discovered with two other physicists, Nathan Rosen. How did they discover it? How did they discover it? It's theory. You know, Einstein was a theoretician. He never, well, now you shouldn't say never. He, he probably did experiments uh, in his young days when he was a graduate student. I did too. But theorists don't do any experiment. Now, what they do is this uh, creative exploration of the mind. By that, they, they find new ideas, new ideas, and then they, then they predict stuff. So Einstein's uh, idea was, and this is 1935, mind you, uh, Einstein's idea was that if quantum objects, two quantum objects interact, they become correlated. And this is a new word that he used in that paper, he and his collaborators, uh, Rosen and Podolsky. Um, these people they really sound in, with their theory, with their mathematics, that if two objects once become correlated, then even when they are not interacting, even if they move away from each other, even then they can communicate. Not in the usual way, not interacting with signals. Then that's the usual, you and I are interacting right now, but we are interacting through a complexity of sound waves and electrical waves through these microphones. That's all through signals. But these objects communicate without signals. So their communication uses a medium that can only be outside of space and time. Because in space and time, Einstein himself gave us a theory of relativity which says that nothing can interact without exchanging signals going through space and time. But these objects, quantum objects, once correlated, they have the capacity of signal-less communication. This is what is called non-local. Signals are local going through space, taking... And how do, they, how do they measure that these particles are communicating? So the key is in that they measure the communication and they show that there is no signal because the communication took place faster than the speed of light. In all local signals going through space and time must travel either at the speed of light or less than the speed of light. So if something can be shown to travel faster than the speed of light, it has to be non-local. And this is what uh, physicists now discovered in the laboratory. Alan Aspey in 1982 finally verified. Einstein was dead long time ago, 1955, so he never knew that his theory will one day not only prove to be right, but really revolutionize the whole world of physics by bringing in concepts of consciousness. So what did they measure? Like when, when you're measuring information that transfers between two particles, what are they measuring exactly? Well, uh, the experiment is a little bit complex probably for a uh, show like this, um, but uh, I can give you the Too gist late of for that. Uh, just, just, uh, <laughs> no, it's intriguing. The thing yes, is that no, definitely. It's, it's very easy, intriguing. Also easy to understand because okay. there is no signal is easy to understand. How to detect it is a more, little more difficult because you have to talk about photons and photons come with a characteristic called polarization and you get more and more technical and mm -hmm. I'm sure your listeners will... get a little dry. Yeah, they will, okay. they will run away. But, but we but don't have to go is, that far. Let's put it this way. If, if, if we irradiate an atom, certain atoms, with a laser beam, then they emit sometimes a pair of photons, one going this way, one going that way. 
So what these experimenters did, one experimenter was measuring this photon over here. The other one was measuring the photon over there in the laboratory, still separated by a laboratory distance, let's say several meters. But the way the communication went, they could flip, <laughs> this is where things get a little complicated, they could flip the polarization axis of one of the, one of the photons, and the other photon's polarization axis seemed to have flipped instantly. They could show this by the uh, technology that we have now. Huh. So it was faster than the speed of light, and that shows that there's non-local communication. That shows there is non-local communication between these two photons. In case you're wondering what photons are, they are quanta of light, mm -hmm. discrete bundles of light. Now, how does that correlate to non-local consciousness? How they correlate to non-local consciousness is the strangest thing that physics is bringing. The, the reason common, common consciousness enters physics was clear even to Heisenberg. That was back in the 1920s. When Heisenberg discovered his theory, he himself said that, okay, what is happening when we measure a quantum object? Before measurement, we knew the object only vaguely. Possibly the object is here somewhere. That's all we knew. We could only talk about possibility and probability. But after we measure, it's a change in our knowledge about the object. We know what the object is exactly. We have measured it. So from vague knowledge to concrete knowledge, this is what a measurement is about. Now notice the word knowledge was used. What is knowledge? Now if you look at the word consciousness, it comes from two Latin words. Come, which is con, with, and uh, the rest of the word comes from the Latin word scire, S-C-I-R-E, scire, which means to know. So consciousness is the entity with which we know. So in this way, what is happening when we measure? A change in consciousness. So Einstein, Heisenberg himself was thinking about that measurement process must involve consciousness. How to prove it? John von Neumann uh, took the crucial step. He showed that the, to change an object, a material object, from possibility to actuality, that concreteness, you could not do this with a material interaction. No material interactions can ever change a possibility wave into a particle of actuality. Now think about it. If material interactions cannot do it, what is needed is some non-material interaction. Does that mean those molecules are conscious in some sort of way? Well, that means that consciousness, can, they're within consciousness. They must be. Otherwise, there will be duality. So they are not, we don't say that molecules are conscious, but we say molecules have to be within consciousness. Because if consciousness is the ground of being, and molecules, atoms, solid objects, macro objects, everything is within consciousness as waves of possibility, then uh, we can think of this force that changes possibility into actuality as a conscious choice. Because what is a possibility wave but a packet of multifaceted potential? Lots of stuff can happen, right? Multifacets. And consciousness uses the particular facet that becomes concretized, that becomes actualized. So in this way, we have found not only the force that consciousness implies that changes possibility into actuality, but we know the nature of that force. It consists of choice. Consciousness chooses. And so 
why is non-locality coming in? So how does consciousness choose in an experiment like us? Here is a possibility of photon. Here is another possibility of photon. Consciousness must be choosing them simultaneously because otherwise there would be no non-local communication. So the local communication proves that there's some form of consciousness going on. But Non-local communication proves that there is some form of matrix that that is involved with the communication that is faster than the that permits faster than the speed of light communication and therefore must be outside of space and time so there's a connection that we can't measure there is a connection that we can theorize about and that connection has to be consciousness because it involves a change of our knowledge do we think of consciousness the same way uh, universally because what what you're saying is a, an instantaneous distribution of information Whereas I think what a lot of people think of as consciousness is, is being sentient. Yeah, that too. But this is the this is the um, this is the original consciousness. This is the this is the stuff. This is this why is we. This is the base. This is the base. So so this is the stuff. This is why we connected to uh, spiritual tradition so much. You must have heard that mm-hmm. the new science is connecting science and spirituality. Now, well, once it gets down to the voodoo, they almost have to. <laughs> you know, when you get down to those quantum particles, you go, okay, what else you got? What else you we got? We got God over Ex- here, exactly man. Right. Want to sit down? <laughs> exactly right. So, so you know, like in, in Buddhism, there is this koan, you know, these surprising yes. lines that you hear and mm-hmm. that, that sort of jolts you. What is your face before you were born? You see the possi- possibility, actuality, mm-hmm. that parallel? What is your face? What is the face of an electron before it is born? Or what is the sound of one hand clapping? Right. One hand clapping, right? Very poignant sentences. What do they mean? Well, they mean quantum physics. What's the sound of one hand clapping? Possibility. The sound of one hand clapping is no sound. No sound. Possibility. Only possibility of sound. Something is there because if it hits something, there will be sound, right? If it hits the other hand. So if it makes contact with something else in the realm... Right. Now, st- I still don't actual. understand how that relates to human consciousness being non-local instead of contained inside so, the so, brain. So I'm coming to that. Okay. So then this is the consciousness as the ground of being. When it chooses, we get actuality. So when you force one, the polarity of one to change, the other one chooses to stay with it. Stay with it. And that's a concrete measurement. Concrete. Measurement, right? Okay. So possibility became measured concrete. We are saying that the that the medium that chooses is the medium called consciousness. That was in the unconscious state at that time. But now, when the measurement actually has taken place, there are there has to be two observers with brains in those locations, because consciousness just does not measure arbitrarily. Right, but the the idea of those of it changing, it has to be conscious to change. It can't be well, just a reaction. There is consciousness, and there is these observers. What I'm saying is, not only we need the concept of non-local consciousness connecting the objects, connecting the observers, but we also need the need to get the concept that at the same time there is non-local consciousness, non-material consciousness choosing. At the same time, there must also be the observer, because without the observer, we never see anything. Have you ever, can you ever imagine finding something without an observer, without a sentient So you have to measure the effect of the observer? So we are all, the observer is also involved, yes. Okay, so just by the presence of the observer changes the experiment. 
presence of the observer not only changes the experiment, presence of the observer is essential for the experiment itself. Not only non-local consciousness is essential, but so is the observer's brain. And you have to factor that in when considering the possibility of non-local consciousness? You have to factor that in when considering the possibility of actualizing, actualizing the possibility. Without individual consciousness looking, no actualization ever takes place. So non-local consciousness is a quiescent, uh, it's sort of, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unconscious existence. Things are processed, but nothing concrete happens in non-local consciousness. Only when the observer is there, then this concretization that we are calling, we physicists use the word collapse, the waves collapse into the particle. But th does this imply that before you existed, nothing else did as well? I mean, what does this imply? So it implies something very strange to absorb initially. What it implies is that before you looked, you yourself did not exist. <laughs> before you looked, funny? you didn't exist. I understand that. But before you looked, you can we assume exist. that all this other shit was already here? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So with the looking, process of looking, the process of collapse, process of changing possibility into actuality not only creates the object, it creates the very subject that you experience. You, you are looking to at you me. personally, but to all the other people that you live in the neighborhood with, these these buildings were real before you got there. No, no, no. They are well; they're real as possibility, but they're not real as actuality. In your world, or in the world period, or is your world the whole well, world? Well, somebody's world got to be present in order to get actuality. Right. I cannot say that only me can create actuality. Then you would be in trouble. You're You'd essentially be... saying that if you've never seen something, it doesn't exist. No, I'm not there saying that exist me personally. I'm not saying me personally. Okay. But a sentient object. Someone. Someone has to observe before possibility becomes actuality. Well, well someone has to make it. You someone, know, if there's a building, someone, someone has to, to so we are the, together. We are sort of the quantum connection. Right. We are the quantum connection to consciousness. Consciousness, non-local consciousness always exists. Right. Right? But that does not change possibility into actuality. Only in the presence of a concrete observer, possibility changes to actuality. Put two and two together. So what happens? In the presence of an observer, non-local consciousness collapses gives a circularity. Without observer, there is no collapse of the possibility into actuality. But then look at it from the other angle. Without collapse, where is the observer? There is no concrete brain. Brain is just a possibility. This circularity is the key to understanding why quantum measurement can take place in the brain. This circularity, this circular kind of logic, this circular logic is what manifests what manifests reality from possibility. If all these devices, like the human brain, or a human living, or a living cell, living cell of, a, of an amoeba even, simplest of creatures, all these very mysterious entities that we have theorized about but could not explain their basic characteristic, like life, sentience, now we can understand how they occur. They occur through quantum measurement involving the circular logic. Doug Hofstadter, who is an artificial intelligence researcher, wrote a marvelous book in 1980 called Goyal Escher In this book, he talked about these circular logical systems as tangled 
hierarchies. So as surprising as it sounds to you, Joe, and I'll just throw at you, brain has a tangled hierarchy within it. This is its specialty. And because it has that, it is capable of experiencing consciousness as being the subject. It captures the subject of consciousness. Consciousness identifies with the brain. And brain, when brain is involved in a measurement process, we who are carrying that brain will say, I look, I'm looking at the electron. Just as you with your brain looking at me, you say, I'm looking at Amit. I say, I'm looking at Joe. Where does that I-ness come from? Before the measurement, we are just consciousness, non-local consciousness, and possibilities within it. I understand that. But I also understand that although I've never been to downtown Detroit, it's real. Dudes have been there. <laughs> they've taken pictures. In fact, people built it, and they wrote books about it. But so I don't have to go there to experience it as an observer to no. know that it exists. No, you don't. But, right. some but someone did. Some, someone has to. Someone had to. If, if everybody in Detroit all of a sudden just falls asleep, including all sentient creatures, then there would be no concrete Detroit. That does not mean that the when Detroit comes to life again, comes to... Uh, our consciousness again as objects, it, it, will, it will become a different Detroit. No, changes don't occur that fast. Remember, the uh, waves of possibility are very sluggish for macroscopic objects. Mm -hmm. So Detroit roughly will appear at the same place, uh, with the same colors, the same houses, the same streets and all that. Mm -hmm. Except that mistake occurs in thinking that is always there. It's not there. I still um, am not understanding how the human consciousness could be measured or proven to be non-local when the brain, what we believe is the center of all this activity that we equate to consciousness. This is a very perceptive question. If it's affected, question. if it's shut off, yep. if it's damaged, yep. we know that it affects consciousness yes. profoundly. So what is... What is the basis for believing that this consciousness is not right. How do you prove it? Yes. This is still theory is what you're saying. Right. Well, no, okay, I'm so, just asking. But, but what, let's analyze what we're really saying. So I, as a brain, make a representation of that consciousness that we are calling non-local. So you build a picture of what it is. Same for everybody. Okay. It's like think of it as the, you know, um, you have seen our archipelago, right? The islands stand out over the ocean, but underneath all the islands are connected. So think of us as connected by this overarching non-local consciousness. But then we are also individual brains, right? We are making, each of us are making a representation of the consciousness that we call our subjecthood. I am a subject to you, the object, but I am an object to you, the subject. So we both have that reciprocity. How do we know that we are non-locally connected? So a neurophysiologist at the University of Mexico experimentally verified this. How do we know? Well, let's meditate together, he said, with the idea that we will be communicating without signals, directly, without signals. So we meditate for 20 minutes, then we are sent over to what is called Faraday cages. Faraday cages are cages, chambers, which are electromagnetically impervious. No electromagnetic wave can go through the walls of this Faraday cage. So you and I are sitting in individual Faraday cages. What that means is that we cannot communicate with any kind of 
electromagnetic signal. So, so you is, can't send a message, you text cannot message, message. You, you can't, cannot yeah. send a message. You yeah. cannot send an electromagnetic message. Nothing can get in. Nothing can get in. But we are still meditating with the idea that somehow we'll communicate directly without signals. And now a, a, our, both of our brains are connected to individual EEG machines, electroencephalogram, measure brain waves. And one of the subjects is shown a series of light flashes. And that, of course, will produce electrical activity in the occipital area of the brain, and the brain wave apparatus, the EEG, will pick it up, measure it. It appears in terms of in, in a graph, which is called uh, evoke potential, uh, when you extract the signal out of all the brain waves, eliminating the noise. So far, no surprise. The other subject is not shown. This is what the surprise is, so please listen carefully. The other subject is not shown a series of light flashes, no light flashes at all. The other subject is connected to the first subject only via this intention, meditation. We will have direct communication. So how do we know direct communication has occurred? The brain waves from this subject, not exposed to light waves, just brain waves of this subject, who is vegetating basically, are picked up from the electroencephalogram machine connected to that brain and then analyzed in exactly the same way, eliminate the noise, extract the signal. The two signals extracted, one from a subject who has seen light flashes, one from a subject which has not seen light flashes, the two the extracted potentials, one is the evoked potential, the other one is called transferred potential. They overlap almost exactly, like 70% overlap is often seen, 80% overlap is often seen. It's amazing. They not only have the same strength, but also the same phase. So explain to the layman, this, 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 they're experiencing light flashes? The, only one is experiencing. Only one. One is experiencing light and flashes. The, the, the other, other one, one is. No light flashes. But the other one is, has a reaction in his mind. A reaction in his brain anyway. No, to the light flashes. Reaction in his brain anyway, which shows that the effect of the light flashes, electrical activity, uh -huh. somehow, without signals, has been transferred from one brain to the other. Why was it then um, assumed that consciousness is non-local? So therefore, of therefore we, we, we say that the two brains are non-locally connected. Non-locally connected. Non-locally connected. So but that possibly, connection matrix is what we call consciousness. Isn't it possible, though, that the mind is where consciousness is stored, but yet it communicates non-locally with other minds and other consciousness that are also stored in people's brains? And that the consciousness is in the brain, and that the non-locality is just the connection. No, you, you, it's not. You, you were you were making making uh, not quite conceivable scenes for this. That's not you, conceivable. That's not conceivable. I'll tell you what. Suppose you imagine imagine consciousness to be contained in a brain. Imagine consciousness contained in this brain and in this brain. But right. what are you saying? You are saying that mind is the you just. You're just inventing another word to convey the notion that there is a non-local matrix. You want to call it mind, I want to call it consciousness. That's the only difference. Okay? Because, look, there is brain here, there is brain here. No need to, no need to say that brain involves something else. 
what brain involves, brain contains, those are words we can give but not necessary. Here is a brain, here is a brain. Somehow they are communicating, right, without any signals because signal could not pass through the Faraday cages. Right. So without any signal, this brain and this brain are communicating. Communicating by, like what? Communicating with a transfer of actual electrical potential that is measurable by physical experiments. So nothing like mental telepathy. Physical, physical transfer of something. Physical transfer of energy without Physical any, transfer of a reaction. Well, not energy. Physical, physical transfer of information, let's yes. put that. Not energy. No energy actually goes from one brain to the other. But the brains change mm -hmm. in such a way there is obviously synchrony in the way this brain changed. But this brain changed because light flashes fall on the, that brain. This brain changing because, not because of light flashes, but because this brain is associated with this meditative awareness. If that's the case, then wouldn't it do you justice to get as far away from a city as possible? Because aren't you constantly communicating with all the minds in your city? And if, if they're all in a good headspace, that's great. But if not, aren't you experiencing the, the crazy light flashes of a, a million neighbors? The possibilities are there. Oh. The saving, you know, but but how far away can you get then? Well, well, do you feel me, that in the top of the mountain? It might help you out though, right? It might be positive to have that much brain action around you. Yeah, especially if they're smart and nice. But one does not need to be so much scared. I mean, it's true that some of that may very well be true. In, in the emotional domain, uh, I actually believe that it is somewhat true. But actually... I believe it's true. I, I believe it's feel, you could feel it. Look, at in the football stadium, we see this, right? Yeah. I mean, one guy becomes angry and how that anger spreads. Right. Does it spread only locally? Most of the people have not even seen the anger where it took place, where right. it began. Uh, so there could very well be a non-local component in that kind of thing. Yeah, a, a hive mind that you experience in concerts as well. You know, when you watch a yeah. concert and everyone yeah. has their hand up in the air with a lighter and they're all singing along the journey, right? Yeah. It they're, they're locked in there, man. Uh, it affects us in a very positive yeah. way. Yes. And and so, but, but how does that not happen in a city in a regular way because we would go crazy. Mm -hmm. The reason right. is the saving guard, the saving grace is the need for correlation. Unless you and I have some sort of intention that connects us, uh, we will not be privileged to communicate through this non-local consciousness. I see yes. what you're saying. So uh, in, unless we have some sort of context to put it into in our own lives, it doesn't affect us as information. The quantum physics even gives it more exactly. It uses the word correlation. We need to be correlated like that in the, in the experiment that I just described, which, by the way, was performed first by a neurophysiologist named Jacobo Greenberg at the University of Mexico. But, but that, that kind of thing... Uh, you know, his experiment depended crucially on this conscious meditative intention. Uh, but people can get correlated simpler than that. Like in a football stadium, uh, people are getting correlated just by the simply the identification with the team. That, that can correlate people. On the Internet, we never see people, but we are correlated because we are some cause that brings us together. Yeah. So there are many ways to get correlated. And then if people, once they become correlated, certain things, I believe that uh, it's easier to transfer uh, emotions than 
actual thoughts. In the thought realm, we don't correlate very well because thoughts are rational and rationality takes us away from this non-local consciousness. But when we are emotional, then this non-local consciousness can correlate us and the effects can travel much better. This is why one person's bad mood can get another person into bad mood or one person's happiness can be communicated to another person's happiness. Happiness is most certainly infectious. Well, it's so one of the reasons why comedy and, clubs work. Uh, <laughs> laughter, you know, laughter yeah. becomes infectious when everyone around you is laughing yes, as well. Yes, they have a laughing meditation today, staking off like wildfire in some places. Laughing meditation? Laughing meditation. I went to India recently, Bangalore, and they have parks, you know, where people uh, gather together every morning like at 6, 6.30, and they will have this laughing meditation. It's it's wonderful thing to watch. And you watch for a while, you yourself will start laughing. That's funny. Do you just tickle each other? or what's the, <laughs> no, no. no, without tickling. <laughs> this is the thing. Um, well, part of it, of course, is, is, is local communication, no denying it. But, but I, so I, jokes and then just the wave of Why don't of they laughter? just start laughing? You just okay. start laughing. And you're supposed to laugh. So everybody just – but, you know, you could not maintain that kind of saying for very long. If right. anything, the mouth muscles will get tired and so forth. But here, because of that non-local correlation, which comes into play after a while, you can see more than what you would expect, just imitating other people to laugh. Wow. That's fascinating. So these people, how many of them meet? Oh, like 50 people. Maybe. 50 people. Wow. And they just get together and just laugh for how long I they do it for? I want to see this. Yeah, <laughs> for about 15, 20 minutes. Uh, 20 minutes of just howling. <laughs> well, <Wow. laughs> I have well, seen it. It, it. it is kind of um, very, very amusing. Wow. Um, if you forgive me, I still don't understand how that makes consciousness non-local. I understand that there's communication. I well, understand that there's uh, this some is, sort of a shared... Laughing meditation, it, 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 this kind of but thing... But even the experiments you were talking about. It, this kind of thing, something unusual happens, is not very difficult to show. Um, Dean Radden, who is a, a parapsychologist working at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dean Radden uh, does the following experiment. He takes uh, what is called random number generators. Right. These things are um, devices in which radioactive decays are taking place. Decays are completely random. As you know, radioactivity is a quantum process, completely random. Radioactive, say that again? Radioactive. Radioactivity is a quantum yes. process, completely random. Random decays are taking place. These random decays are processed by a computer to generate random arrays of zeros and ones. So they're called random number generators. Right, I've heard of this. So, so you have random arrays, supposedly. And there will be some deviation from randomness, which can be calculated. The rules of statistics gives you that. But Radden had the tremendous insight of taking these machines to meditative places. I don't know if he has actually done this with laughing meditators, but he could. And what I'm saying is that in the presence of meditative people, these random number generators start behaving non-randomly. Non-randomly quite way beyond what the predicted deviation should be. So were they concentrating on specific numbers to be generated? Yeah, and zeros and ones. Zeros, zeros and, and ones. ones. And you, you should have... A uniform in, number, yeah, essentially. random array. You should have equal and so zeros and equal ones. Did they concentrate on specific, like one group on zero, one group on no, one? No, no, they didn't do anything. 
Yeah, the, just meditating. Just meditating. Just meditating. It. And how did it affect it? The the random number generator, uh, the numbers they generate, they're not so random anymore. Right. There is more zeros than ones. But wouldn't that, in fact, I mean, the, the whole idea of quantum leaping and quantum uh, teleportation, mm-hmm. meaning that distance really isn't an issue, right? Yeah, distance is not an issue. So, so why is it that with these people meditating in the room with all this jazz that it affects it, whereas I would assume any time you run a random number generator, there's someone meditating somewhere in the world, probably massive groups of them. Right. How could the effect of just a couple individuals vary that much very, from the great hive? Very, very intelligent question. But remember, I also told, told about another factor. People have to be correlated. Right. So that local correlation is important. Now, if you correlate and then uh, look for these effects, send people away and they still remain correlated because they are meditating, mm-hmm. then that should work. If um, if you set up a group of meditators, but not in Los Angeles, but in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York, but they all were correlated in some ways by telephone or by internet or some intention given by a common source, once they're correlated and they start meditating, distance should not matter. Okay, so what essentially what you're saying is their energy focused on this one thing can now be measured, whereas if their energy is not focused on it, it doesn't have an effect on it, and the focusing on the thing has an effect. The focusing is the intention. If we translate the word focusing to intention, then I would agree with you. Okay. Focusing is too general to convey the complete notion. I, I understand. But, but it's something like a focusing, so because intention is also a focusing. That, to me, if, if if it's truly measurable, definitely shows that there's some effect that the mind has on its. Uh, yeah, what it's except, except that the word mind we use okay. slightly differently. Consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah, okay. Exactly. That consciousness is having an effect, but I still I don't know how that keeps you uh, from. I mean, I don't know how that makes consciousness being non-local. Uh, so a how proven did you thing. communicate? How did you communicate? Our picture is very simple, mm-hmm. like this: you and I had a transfer potential. Electrical activity was transferred from my brain to your brain without any electrical connection. The connection is non-local, no question, right? You're not having any difficulty with that. That's just right, fact. Right. How do we interpret it? We interpret it, how could this happen? How could this happen is because you, although you have not been exposed to these light flashes now, but you have in your brain memory of seeing light flashes. Mm-hmm. You have seen light flashes many times in your life. And it's right? because we're correlated. Uh, no, no, because you have seen them before. Okay, you I have see memory. what you're saying. So uh, out of these memories, which are all unconscious processes, by the way, whenever you are vegetating, uh-huh. your unconscious brain, unconscious, unconscious, picks yes. up this brain stuff and becomes they become the subjects of the objects of the unconscious for processing. So unconscious always has these memories to process. That's an interesting point. Then what happens if you do an experiment where one person experiences something that they have uh, no background in, have never seen before, most people don't know, nor does the other person in the other room who's going to receive the signal, how does he process something that he's never experienced before? In that case, transfer potential would be very difficult. 
Huh. But what so I'm it's saying based is, on memory? Well, based on the brain memory existing. Understanding what and, it's and, saying. And then consciousness is choosing from that. So how did... How what did, a shitty way to communicate. <laughs> no, not at all. Because <laughs> because how, what a marvelous way to well, communicate. You have to have memory of it, though. Yeah, you have to, to have sense. memory of it. But most, right. things, most things that we think about we have, or most things we are exposed, we have memories of it. Huh. I mean, how, how many new things, completely new things, do you, do you get exposed in a day? I will say zero, zero. You should party with this dude on a weekend. <laughs> you get exposed to new shit, son. Yeah. <laughs> but really, zero, because right. there will be at least something coming. I, I understand that there's communication. What I do not understand no, is so, the defining so of give consciousness. The, give the name. What is, how is this memory being actualized in your brain? Ask that question. There's some sort it's of a signal, a transfer of information, but not even a good one. No, wait a minute. Because it only wait, relies wait, wait, on wait someone. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Remember, bring quantum physics. Mm -hmm. You're thinking classically again. Okay, I'm sorry. Newtonian. I'm sorry. No, bring quantum Damn. physics. I'm all you... Newtonian. <laughs> Unfortunately. <that's... laughs> no, but that is the problem. We are all okay, Newtonian when we are not okay. using subtle language. So you right. have to sort of get used to it. I understand. Your brain is possibility. Okay. So this unconscious is just giving you possibility. So unless this entity called consciousness is choosing possibility, you would not have the actual transfer potential. Okay. So how can you have a transfer potential from evoked potential being transferred by a non-local matrix that we are calling mm -hmm. consciousness? Because it has to be consciousness which chooses out of the possibilities of your brain generated by previous memory because you are meditating with your partner. Mm -hmm. And the partner has seen these light flashes. Consciousness, by virtue of that correlation, is choosing from your unconscious, which mm -hmm. has the memory, but nothing more than that, has the possibility, but nothing more than that, no actuality. But consciousness is choosing the actuality because you are meditating to receive that. Sir, I'm going to have to disagree with you. <laughs> and this is why. I, I understand no. what you're saying. I, I completely do. But I don't think it necessarily means that your that consciousness is non-local. Make, make an alternative model. Well, this, it doesn't have to be an alternative model. Just the idea of communication and only through through information being passed forth. What, we, what you're measuring is so like imprecise. These no, no, signals. No, 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 no. You're saying 70%, no, 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 right? No, 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 no. Nothing imprecise. Okay, there's some sort of a signal being transferred between one person and another. 70%, right? 70 is huge, I'll tell you. Okay. When you don't meditate, when you don't meditate, right. the potential of the other person who is vegetating is practically zero, nothing. So there's no transfer whatsoever no if transfer no one's meditating. Okay. If you don't meditate, they never found they never found any transfer potential. Right. But whenever you meditate, all of a sudden there is this electric potential which is like seventy percent, eighty percent, sixty percent of the direct evil potential. There is something here. Too so there's something being transferred. To, and something it's being transferred without right. without any signal. I, I That's totally so, so appreciate the, so that. The, so the matrix between the two people, I'm just giving it a name. That mm -hmm. matrix we call consciousness. Right. Because what is happening in the in the in the two people? Consciousness is remember the vehicle to know with. Mm -hmm. So what is happening is that something is being transferred 
which has no basis for the transfer. Transfer takes energy. That is our usual experience. Mm -hmm. Here is transfer taking place without any energy transfer, without any signal transfer. Why? I totally understand Why? that. Because the possibility of that is already there in the other brain, and consciousness is choosing the possibility and making it actual. How is that any different than distributing information? How is it any different than one person has an experience and relays that experience through information to the other person with completely local, with local signals? But, but, yeah, through something, with through some sort of a connection. Yeah, local signals. That's but not even, but not like sound signals or being able to communicate. I mean, in the meditative state, ex, ex, exchanging if, information. If it is not local signals, then it is consciousness only. Now you got you're getting it. You're just ob objecting to language. But does the person who is sitting in the other room, who's receiving these signals, do they have a memory of this? There's, is there a cognitive impact? There is, the, there is the definite signal that I'm detecting for this brain. Is the person aware of it who detects it? No, the, there the, is no the cognition. Scientist. There is no, no cognition. No cognition in the other person because the brain is so complex. Unless you focus on something, they, we have never, we have not yet been able to isolate a cognitive change in the person. See, that's where I'm having a hard time making the leap between what I, what I understand to be a clear sense of some sort of a communication. But how does that mean that all consciousness is non-local? How does no, that not mean no, no. some re new form of communication that is evolving inside the human body? <sighs> <laughs> now you are using another language. That's I'm sorry, I mean, yes. but I mean... No, I mean, no, no, it's a new form, exactly right. Am I Newtonian? Did I go Newtonian no, on you? No, no, if you don't go Newtonian, <laughs> it is a new form of communication. Right, I understand. To consciousness, yes. that's all yes. I'm saying. That it's, it, but it's it, rudimentary right now. Uh, look, I'm just giving it a name. Okay. You agree that there is something non-local, so, right? If, if you're telling me, you're, you're telling me, I'm, I don't understand no, no, any no. of this. I, yeah, I agree you, that with, in your story, in your, uh, not I want to say story, I mean Joe, in your Joe, experiment Joe, that you explained Joe, to me. Joe, yes, slow I down, agree. Slow down. Okay, sorry. You already agreed many yes. times actually during this broadcast well, that all, there is, without signals, a transfer of information or transfer of potent, electric potential. Completely based on your story. I mean, completely based on the yes. experimental data. My yes. story is I don't mean story, that's a bad data. word for it. I uh, mean your information that you're, you're presenting The experimental me. data. Two dozen experiments in two yes. dozen laboratories in different parts of the world. What we call this matrix of um, trans transfer of signals yes. is where, where our difference is. Yes, I what think. I'm saying is that it is, if you look at through the rest of our theory, because con it takes consciousness to, to choose anything, information. so we call this matrix consciousness. Mm, okay. And in fact, the person who's receiving on the other end, even though consciousness is non-local, the other person doesn't even conscious they're receiving it, if you want to look at it that no, way, or cognizant. That, no, that would not help very much for the experiment. Remember, people already have data, extensive mm -hmm. data of telepathy. But because, really? Yeah, What's the most convincing data of telepathy the, that you've experienced? I'll, I'll tell you. I have myself experienced. Uh, or, or that you know no, of. Uh, myself, again, it's subjective. So uh -huh. people, of course, would object. But uh, this, uh, these experiments, called distant viewing experiments, have been done Remote now, viewing? Remote viewing. It's now done so accurately. Yeah. Analyzed by computers. You are looking at a town square at a statue. Your correlated person, correlated by the intention of the experiment, experimenter, is sitting in a closet in the laboratory. 
He's just drawing a picture of the statue that you're looking at. If nobody knows what you're looking at. A computer has chosen where you will go to look at the statue. A computer, unbeknownst to everyone connected with the experiment, is analyzing the picture that with this, your correlated friend, psychic, is drawing of what you're looking at. And then the computer is bringing the two together, the picture of the statue that you're actually looking at and the picture that the person has drawn. Computer does the matching, and computer says, hey, there is 90% match between these two. This could not be just a happenstance. This, this got to be a transfer of information, got to be an example of telepathic What uh, studies specifically have shown remote viewing to, to be that accurate? Is okay. there anything that you could, well, just for the folks listening, yeah, could this go? Is the, this is Russell Targan, Harold Puthoff started this kind of experiment uh, uh, in 1970s. Yeah, Russell Targ is actually coming on the podcast. Um, he's uh, he's going to be on in um, April. Yeah, good. Yeah, he was one of the pioneers. So yeah. they started this in 1970s, uh, 73, 74, if I, if I remember it right. And he and Harold Puthoff, his partner, they did a lot of this in SRI, Stanford Research mm -hmm. Institute. And... Um, uh, what the new thing is that these are the analysis is done much by very objectively. It's no longer subject. But even then, material is uh, object to it because it's, it's still the mind. Mm -hmm. But in the experiment that I gave you, transfer potential experiment of Harko Greenberg, uh, nobody can object because it is not, mind is not involved. Actually, cogn if cognition got involved, people would immediately start saying, oh, it's subjective. But here, the transfer actually is in the objective domain. A material, measurable, materially measurable electric potential here, a materially measurable electric potential there. In between, no local connection. And therefore, the proof actually in this experiment, the transfer potential experiment, is the most accurate proof of non-locality than you ever saw. So that means that there's a connection that we don't know about that has always existed between human beings constantly, and the the only thing that's missing is the intention and the the, the focus on the two together. Right now, wow. you stated it complete accuracy. Is I'm, I'm sorry. Is this something that you think, as we have evolved from lower primates to human beings, is this something that is beginning to show its potential in the human species? Is it something that might improve and expand? If you, if you believe other experimental data uh, that uh, people have been collecting since the early 50s or 60s, like, um, what is the name of that fellow, Baxter, I forget his first name, Clyde Baxter, does that make, make, make a I memory? can look it up for you, Clyde ba Baxter. Baxter, Baxter is the last name, that I know. He did some experiment with communication with plants. Communication with plants. Mm -hmm. So now that was that was that was one of the earliest experiments, and there are others. So it's not just humans. Uh, plants have that ability. Probably even amoeba has that ability, but at a very rudimentary. Yeah, his uh, name is Cle it's Cleve C L E V E okay. Baxter. Yeah, yeah. Cleve Baxter. Okay, Baxter. What the hell kind of name is that? <laughs> but great experiment. He was discredited much. 
But uh, now we understand that no, there could really be something in his experiments. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. That there's a, a perception between animals, and he did it using a polygraph machine. Yeah, he, he was polygraph machine. But Rupert Sheldrake is the latest, one of the latest entries in this. He is showing that dogs communicate telepathically with their masters. Yeah, I heard about this, and I've also I've heard some other things that Rupert Sheldrake has said recently, something about the speed of light varying, which uh, a lot of people are coming down on him for, that it's uh, bad science and that it's pseudoscience at best. I haven't um, seen that. Yeah, I haven't seen that either, but the people on my message board were going bananas about him because um, he's a very controversial character in the first place because – if if what he says is true, like as the amazing Randy is always offered, I think it's a million dollars for anybody can prove any sort of psychic connection. Why isn't anybody taking that guy up on this? Because he don't pay. He doesn't pay. He doesn't pay. And because that son he of always, a bitch. Because he always finds, like, you know, you, you can always object, no, this is 70% transfer. I want 100% transfer. Is that <laughs> what he does? I like, don't know what he does, but he will not pay. I mean, anybody, look, in this kind of situation... You can always raise some objection to everything. Has okay? there ever been uh, a study that you've seen on these dogs knowing that their masters are coming home? I've I heard it's true. I've seen the movie. I've, uh, Rupert, what movie is that? Rupert made a movie of this. And I saw the movie. It's remarkable. He's, I, I know him. I, yeah. I'm a good friend of his, actually. So my wife and I went to his house. And he showed us a movie of um, the dog and also the parrot. Uh, the parrots he has shown also can communicate telepathically with their masters. Wow. It's amazing. The, the dog movie I remember very clearly. Um, the dog is waiting in the house, and his regular sitting place is the sofa. That's where as soon as the master leaves, he lops on, uh, jumps on the sofa and rests there. You know, dogs have to right. have it. They love human warmth, warming up the sofa, the particular place where the master sat, and they will stay there. So he's there. And five o'clock comes, right? Master is now getting up from her desk. And the dog jumps and comes to the window. It's time and time again, he has photographed the dog and photographs the master. So dogs are becoming aware as soon as the master is ready to come home. And that awareness is shown by the dog jumping down at that exact time as master gets up from her desk, his desk, mm -hmm. to come home. It's amazing. He's done it multiple times, though? Multiple times of it, and, and always using cameras in both places, in synchrony, and always exactly at that time, the wow. dog will react. The, and if the master does not get up from the desk, dog will not get up from his sofa either. Hmm. So it, it's it's quite amazing these responses. So what I suspect. Why doesn't he just collect that million? <laughs> no, I would say I feel like that's, you know, if you got that, this well, is his concept is it's called morphic res resonance. Is that well, the? Uh, well, no, he, this is just telepathy. He, mm -hmm. he would not bring morphic resonance for this one. Morphic resonance right, but are it's matrix, matrix for transforming people's uh, learning. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a slightly different thing. You learn something, it's stored in the morphic, uh, morphic fields, morphogenetic fields, and then um, if I, I might be able to uh, get these morphogenetic fields to communicate to me. Yeah, I, the, 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 the concept I thought was kind of related because his, 
is he deals in an interconnectivity sort of a way too with this. He believes that if animals have animals like of a species have a certain sort of a, a database almost, and then if rats in St. Paul learn how to get through a maze, the same rats in Florida will be able to get through it quicker. Yeah, but but this kind of thing has to be taken with a grain of salt. That does? Yeah. At all the crazy shit we've talked about, that has to be taken with a grain of salt? Yeah, because the transfer is occurring to this, um, this, 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 this fields, the morphogenetic fields. It, 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 it may not transfer in exactly that form. It's what, I'm, what I'm saying is that the originally what happened was people started this kind of thinking because an experiment seemed to have done. This is a real experiment. Mm-hmm. real experiment was that the, uh, in an island, uh, some monkeys um, learn, a monkey mother, that's how it started, a monkey mother learned to wash her sweet potato before eating. And she found that the taste improves much so she immediately taught it to her offspring. So the baby monkeys are also learning that. And then the entire island of monkeys learned to wash their sweet potatoes before eating. Okay. Somehow, this was the data, anthropological data. I've looked at the paper in the original journal. It's fine. But when somehow somebody reported on this data in a book, that somebody invented an extension which never happened, which is that in monkeys in a nearby island without any connection picked up the same learning. So it's a lie. It was based well, on... Well, a, it was an exaggeration. That never was verified. Motherfuckers. Researchers that exaggerate, that's a dangerous well, thing. That's a dangerous habit. Writers exaggerate. This is mm. not a researcher exaggerating. Yeah. Writer exaggerate. Comedians exaggerate too, Comin- but it's Comedians funny. exaggerate. Politicians exaggerate. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> communicators exaggerate. Communicators yeah. exaggerate because we are used to attract attention. Yes. Anything for the sake of attention. So maybe they just wanted to uh, get funding for their research. Well, not that way. No researcher exaggerated. It's only the communicators. Okay. They think that the book will sell more if I say something very strong. I understand. I would assume that uh, something like animals washing their food, if human beings, I mean, the word evolution is a very touchy subject amongst people when it comes to natural selection and the advancement of the species, but it's commonly acknowledged scientifically that we were once primitive organisms. And that's all that was on the planet. If that is the case, the, the intelligent animals like chimpanzees or monkeys or whatever, they would, I would assume that much like people slowly all over the world figured out how to make tools with rocks, that monkeys would slowly figure out new cats things. Cats well. and cat litter. Yeah, they invent them themselves. No, no, I'm just saying that cats are born just knowing how to use a cat litter yeah. box. It's in their. No, uh, yeah, exactly. That's right, but they never get smart that's enough that. to Thank use you. the phone. Thank you for pointing yeah. that out. That's exactly. There, it, it seems interesting because you were right and you were right. Mm-hmm. You were right because it is true that lots of things don't get transferred so easily, and it is also true that there are this uh, case of instinct. Right. There was some transference of that kind of thing that universally everybody has picked up what, since then. What's your feeling on epigenetics, the idea? That, that uh, epigenetics are related to these morphogenetic yeah. fields. So it is now very clear. Would you explain that to people? Yeah, sure. Um, belief was, ever since Darwin, and after some verifications of Darwin that came about, the belief has been 
that genes are the only way that any hereditary characteristics learning can be transferred to subsequent generations. That has been the belief, right? Now, now though, there are phenomena which show that no something else may very well be involved. One of the striking phenomenon is this phenomenon of morphogenesis or cell differentiation. We all begin as, you and I both began as single-celled embryos, right? And then that single cell divides itself, divides itself, making replica of itself. But it is still true that our toe cells and our brain cells behave very differently. Why? Because the proteins are very different, proteins that are made in those cells. How are proteins made? Proteins are made because of instructions written in the gene called the genetic code. But the genes of all of our cells are the same. So the explanation is that some genes are activated in the toe, make to throw proteins, and other genes are activated in the brain, making the brain proteins. This is why brain cells differ very much in their activity than the toe cells. Okay, so far? Yes. All right, so then this, how does this cell differentiation take place? So people say there must be programs. Genes of the toe cell is programmed differently than the genes of the brain cells. Okay. Where toe cells and brain cells. Toe cells and brain cells. Okay. They have different programs running the right. genes. But where are these programs, right? So initially the belief was the program must also be in the genes. Now people are seeing that no, the programs for cell differentiation are not in the genes. They're in the epigenetics outside of the gene. So Shellbrake originally was suggesting very something very similar with his idea of morphogenetic field. And so if you assume that morphogenetic fields are the blueprints of biological form and they are non-local, then there is no way of, no difficulty in explaining why the toe cells behave very differently in brain cell. How does the cell know what to do in a different, when it is in a different part of the body? If it's in the, in the toe, then those genes have to be activated which can, which can make protein which can perform in the toe way. If it's in the brain, similarly, those genes will be activated which can make protein which makes it behave the brain way. But how are they doing it in all in synchrony? Because of this non-local morphogenetic field that is involved. So in a way, epigenetics is the first step of verification of Sheldrake's idea. The next step is, is, is taken by biologists like Bruce Lipton who are saying that, well, quantum processes are involved in biology. And so if quantum processes are involved, then our consciousness-based quantum measurement theory is telling us that consciousness must be involved. So in this way, we, can, we now can understand the whole gamut of ideas that leads to these things. And finally, to connect up what you were just saying, these instincts, so certain learning from the past do get passed on. So the belief is the specific, some specific type of learning which involves emotions. My guess is that if the learnings involve emotional, has an emotional aspect, then probably the morphogenetic fields are easier to transfer. Then there's certain innate uh, sort of fears that, that, as well. That, yeah, involving fears and similar emotions, egotism and 
sexuality. Even racism, they've even shown. Racism, this kind, this kind of thing. But, but if it is purely cerebral, mental, then it is probably harder to transfer through morphogenetic field. Um, but morphogenetic field transfer is a very, very good idea. And you have to find some explanation of the instincts. It did get transferred. In instincts are universal. So we have a very peculiar situation. Instincts could not possibly be explained by genetics. Many people have written about this. It's very difficult to understand on the basis of genes. So if you bring morphogenetic field to understand instinct, then you get the idea that, yes, we can, we can today become a nice person, have brain circuits of... Um, uh, love, and then a few generations later, via the transference by this morphogenetic field, everybody will begin to have circuits of love in their brain. Well, that's you bring up a really interesting point because um, the the chemical composition of uh, of the mind, all, all the the different serotonin and dopamine and the neurotransmitters and all the different things that are going on inside the mind, alter those in one way or another, positive or negative, and you get profound effects on how the person behaves and thinks and interfaces with their reality. How do you feel um, personally about um, all the different pills that people are on and all the different pills that, that alter consciousness? It seems a very strange time when we are doing uh, so much experimentation on, uh, on a daily basis, altering the way a person's mind is, uh, is interfacing with its reality. And True. we see profound effects. Um, a lot of people seeing. don't know. 90% of school shooters um, either were on antidepressants, uh, had been on them, and were on withdrawal. Oh, 90% is a big number. I big mean, it number. doesn't prove that that's what caused it because a lot of times these people are depressed. And guess what? People who are depressed get on antidepressants. It doesn't mean that it caused them to be psychotic or to have psychotic breaks. But there's something to be... Th there's 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 something to be studied for sure. Well, and it's, it's, it's very dangerous to put the natural brain under drugs of any kind, especially those drugs which are psychoactive, because you don't even know. The studies are so scanty; uh, you don't even know what the effects are, and how the effects will be, especially the long-term effects. And 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 what we do know is that depression is now the third biggest epidemic disease, well, it's almost epidemic, but besides heart disease and cancer, depression is the third most common chronic disease, seems like. Why is it? Because depression depends so much on these brain chemicals, and of course so much also on how we process our stuff, emotions, th thinking. So something is basically going wrong. In the, in, the, in the new theory, um, where we talk in terms of chakras, because those are the places where uh, they are very much involved with our emotions. The emotion that is involved in the highest place in our body, the neocortex, emotions that are involved with it specifically are what we call satisfaction. So if the neocortex is played with, certainly it will um, affect our level of satisfaction. By the same token, people might be using antidepressant to get a pseudo-level of satisfaction. You know what happens when you take Prozac. Mm -hmm. You get sort of, you get temporarily, you, you get, to get, get to look at the world as okay. You get mm -hmm. that feeling of okay. Yes. You're satisfied. So people are using things like that to give them a feeling of satisfaction because it's not there. 
in the absence of taking this drug, Prozac. So in this way, but we don't know the consequence of taking Prozac in a good brain, long-term consequences of it. Mm -hmm. I am terribly, terribly upset about the drug culture because we are getting into stuff. The very device that we need that is intimately connected with our consciousness. Without brain, there is no manifest consciousness. We have to recognize that. To play with that vehicle, which gives us the basic way of cognition, basic way of experiencing everything that we know. Conversely, though, I have met people that have some sort of an imbalance. They have some sort of a, a chemical balance in the mind, and I've personally seen people take medication, and it's benefited them greatly, and it's improved Absolutely. their... Absolutely. But there's that, but then there's also people that just, they're not living a fulfilling life. They're, they don't have good friendships, relationships, job opportunities. They, they're not pursuing the career they, they really wanted to. Be to. They have good reason to be depressed, and a lot of times what that depression is is, in fact the world around you and how your body is perceiving it and the negative energy that you're getting and feeling about it is supposed to motivate you to change. Yeah. It's supposed to motivate you to move away from it. The negative feelings that you have after any f personal altercation with someone, those are supposed to be like, that's to let you know, hey, whatever you just did, don't fucking do that anymore. Okay? Whatever, however you interacted with a person that be, created this terrible wave of bad feelings it's not satisfying you it's not satisfying I, you I, I, and exactly you can't just right. take a pill exactly right to change that but the, the way to way to way to uh, there are two kinds of situation involved here when the brain the device itself may have wrong neurochemicals and therefore we get dissatisfaction we get um, depression or it can be that the psychological effect of stuff that's producing the, the depression. If it is the, the latter psychological stuff that's producing dissatisfaction, then actually, it, in a way, it's easier because we can use psychological method. In fact, we should. I am not in favor of using brain chemicals like Prozac to reestablish uh, the balance if the cause is psychological. If the cause is coming from genetics or family history or, or clear brain uh, dysfunction, brain imbalance, then it should be treated with, with brain chemicals, with, with, with medicine. But if it is psychologically caused, it's better to try to improve the satisfaction level of the person. And we, we can, we, we can, by bringing uh, emotions in the higher chakra, starting with the heart chakra where love resides, uh, then expression where, um, which resides in the throat chakra, and then focusing which resides in the third eye or in between the two brows, brow chakra, and then, of course, um, the crown chakra, in the, the neocortex, which is the seat of satisfaction. So... We, we can improve satisfaction by concentrating not so much on the lower emotions, which is the lower chakras. There, the emotions that you get are all those fear and sexuality and pride. Sexuality is low? Oh, yeah. I thought it was way up there. Well, it, it's in a sense because it's a doorway <laughs> to something way up there, doorway right. to love. So sex is actually a very special one because if used in moderation, 
sex is actually a very good one because right. it's the doorway to love. It's one doorway to love. I've always thought that. I always got pissed off at monks that don't have sex. Like, yeah, you're because missing out. look, I mean, sex is a easy. Way. This is why we call you know effing uh, make love, right? Mm-hmm. Fudging. You, you can you can you can do it the f way or you can do it making love. Right. The point is that what you the way we use it. So sex is kind of. Good and bad both. I mean, right. all of this actually good and bad both. Fear is also good sometimes because it takes us away from danger. Egotism even is good sometimes because it gives us assurance, self-assurance. So used in moderation, the negative emotions are okay. It's when they go out of control, then there are problems. Right. Positive emotions are good all the time. Little or more, you know, love is not going to kill you. Love is only going to elevate you. So you can never have too much love. So in this way, if we learn to concentrate more on these positive emotions, we could actually heal all psychologically caused cases of depression. Psychologically caused cases of depression, that's where you have to differentiate, correct? You have to differentiate between people who are depressed because they're in a bad state in life and people who are depressed because the mind's not working correctly. Because and there the are brain, two. brain is not working correctly. The real issue is the overdiagnosis then, or at least the uh, overprescription, overprescribing. What, what psychiatrists tend to do, because it's easy to treat the brain chemical with a chemical, Yes. psychologists uh, try to get away with just using drugs because the effect will be quicker. Yeah. I think if we use an integration of both approaches, why they do quicker? Because it's, have you ever lived with a, um, a mentally uh, ill person? It's many, very difficult. Many of them. Yes. It's very difficult. So parents, of course, want immediate cure. So best strategy probably is to use antidepressants immediately because that will give a temporary healing. But right. of course, the psychological reasons will be present, so it will come back. It will continue. And then you, you start the, the psychological treatment that I'm suggesting, which already people are suggesting I shouldn't take the original credit for it, nothing like that. But this dealing with noble emotions, higher emotions, positive emotions, that healing will take time. Prozac can give us time. Prozac can buy us time. So we can use a combination of both conventional and the new um, medicine, uh, mind-body medicine suggestion. This is what I suggested is called mind-body medicine because you are trying to heal the brain imbalance with the effect of the mind, with the help of the mind. This seems to be uh, a real issue with modern humans, too, in that the life that we live does not really satisfy all of our natural reward systems that we have in place, the yeah, hunter-gatherer that, systems yeah, and sitting in a yeah. cubicle and, and, you know, all of it. Even monogamy is a struggle for a, a lot of people for, the, for that very reason, is that we have a lot of genetics that are set up from a different time, and they're still in our system. And, and we, have not taught, we have not taught very well. We, we have been up and taught how to manage it, correct? Yeah, yeah. We, don't, we are not being taught how to manage it correctly. Yeah. That's a very important, very important point. Isn't that one of the most important things that you could teach a child is how to, how to manage their thoughts? Yeah, but, we, you know, educational reform is so needed, so needed. For another thing, you know, how do you, how do you bring this stuff to a child? You have to use creativity. Obviously, these conditionings are there. The body is conditioned in a certain way since the days of hunter-gatherers. Those conditionings are still present. 
mind has moved on to rational mind. Look at the predicament of us learning today, because some of our conditioning of the body remains the same as the hunter-gatherer. Nothing has changed. Right. But the mind has moved on to purely dealing with mind. Mind does not even deal with the body very much. Well, not only that, the environment has changed radically. So the environment that your physical body is interfacing with has changed radically, and those natural reward systems are not being fed. Not being fed. So we live in a world where we really need a new educational system which will bring these aspects up and use creative creativity quite extensively because these things require creative learning. What, what has to happen is that the context of our thinking, which is thinking without the emotions, this has evolved, evolved so much, you know, it becomes very cerebral thinkers, only involving the neocortex. Instead, we can, we can start involving some of what we left behind, some of the emotions that are into it, some of the emotions that we have not dealt with. And we have to reunite, reintegrate how we think about emotions, reintegrate that into our present life system, which is more thinking rationally, which is thinking about thinking itself, not so much thinking emotionally. Is that very frustrating to you as, as, uh, as a professor for over 32 years, I believe, right? Is it frustrating to you? Uh, well, you see... it, it, it was until I discovered new ways of teaching. I started uh, putting things in an emotional way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you, you, can, you can reframe, you know. I mean, you, you don't have to... When we teach new physics, for example, quantum physics versus classical physics. Classical physics is all cerebral. But quantum physics, because it has that aspect of choice, I choose, therefore something can happen. Already, an emotional component can get in. Because whenever you say, I choose, you'll find that your third chakra, navel chakra, uh, the sort of body ego, is immediately alert. Navels where your ego's at? Body ego. Not the mind, the oh, mental okay. ego, but the body ego. So that's why people weird out when you poke their belly button? <laughs> like, hey, man, get off my ego. Yeah, there is a, there is a bit of that. Uh, the, the, when, when you feel quite, uh, quite assured of yourself, uh, you find that navel chakra is fine, quite at ease. But when so you, you can take that... a little nice navel massage right. and be cool with it. But, but when you are not feeling so assured, butterflies in the stomach. Very oh, that's common, interesting. Very, very common experience. That's interesting, and that's uh, the, connection. The, that's the connection. Where where's that whole chakra thing come from? What is that from? Oh, they, 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 there was no explanation for a long time. Then we, in the new science, we have an explanation. Because in the new science, we introduce these morphogenetic fields as part of reality. What are morphogenetic fields? They are the blueprints of biological organs, right? We went through the cell differentiation. Um, so neocortex has a blueprint, um, the toes have a different blueprint. So these blueprints is the, uh, is the morphogenetic field. So in quantum physics, we said that morphogenetic fields and these organs are then non-locally correlated through consciousness. Consciousness operates the non- on one hand the blueprints, on the other hand the organs. Chakras are those places where the organs are present, the important organs of the body. Look at all the chakras. Every chakra is the site of a very important organ. Is there a sexual chakra? Yeah. That's what What's that is. one called? 
Well, that one is called sex chakra. It's just called sex chakra? It's called sex chakra. Do they work on that one in yoga too? Uh, is that have, why those have, girls are wearing those tight they're, pants? They're, is that what that's all about? They're, they're, of course, but yoga, of course, has a Sanskrit name of it. I don't mention Sanskrit name of it, it right. It's, it's very complex. But so there is I a scientific sort of a correlation between the chakras. Scientific correlation between the sex organs and the corresponding morphogenetic field. Do you practice yoga yourself? Yeah, of course. Do you? Every day? It's a good thing. Not yeah. every day because of my travel schedule, but most days that I can, yes. And yoga has been around for thousands of years, and some people will just dismiss it as simply stretching. But if you've never actually done it, and I, I try to tell people, just go to one of those Bikram's yoga classes. Just take one class or, or whatever's in your neighborhood. Just take one class and then talk. Because until you do, you really don't know what that feeling is like. That okay. feeling after yoga is you're high. Okay, you're high a little bit. You you're love right. people. You want to call people and apologize. You want to hug people. I'm telling you, Brian, you need that you, shit in you your were, life, son. You, you, you were high, definitely. <laughs> what happens, yeah, you're high. What happens is that the, especially with pranayama, mm -hmm. breathing yes. exercises, yes. Uh, the energy gets into the crown chakra, satisfaction, right? Or in the higher chakras, very definitely. So crown chakra is connected with, you know, if crown chakra is satisfied, you get these endorphin molecules. That's the byproduct of yoga, of the crown chakra. So uh, endorphin molecules are wonderful. If that's the high, that's yes. the high, actually. So it's very simple explanation why we get this high and, and why it should not be trivialized. You, there are many other ways to get high, but this is one of the best ways because... At the same time, you're getting, getting an exercise of the muscles and the joints. Yes, and you're stretching. And in stretching, like a lot of people don't think, you think of stretching as for athletic performance. But stretching is also for a tension release. It's That's an amazing it. tension release. And, 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 and because that tension release now will in the future save you from very debilitating disease like yes. arthritis. Yes, absolutely. So, so it's, it's, it's a preventive medicine in a way. And flexibility lost is very difficult to very regain. Very difficult to very difficult But to it's not that hard to maintain once you've attained it. Once you have attained it. And the, the key is not to never to completely discontinue it. Even if you can do once a week, it's better than not doing it at all. You know what the problem with yoga is, though? Fake yoga people. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? You do. People that are just claiming to be spiritual and, and showing up at yoga classes, but they're really annoying. Do you know those people? You do, right? But, but, but the point is, of course, that you know there will always be fake people. There's always going to be bumper stickers. Always going to be bumper stickers. So yeah. you cannot avoid it. Those the important thing is not to throw away the real thing because of the fake. It's very true. And in reality, it's a small percentage of the yoga people that are fake. It's a tiny percentage. And, tiny if you, percentage. and if you think about the general scammers in the population, there's always going to be issues with men um, and male ego and posturing. And there's always going to be, I mean, similar issues uh, with women and women dealing with other women. But I, I've seen the, the fake yoga man and I've seen the fake yoga woman. I'll take the fake yoga woman every day. The, <laughs> the fake yoga man is trying to get laid. The fake yoga woman is just trying to be a, pretend to be a little more spiritual and non-materialistic than she truly is. But the fake yoga man is just trying to get laid. He's annoying. Well, I mean, Again, maybe one out of a hundred, but that's enough. Well, right? you know, these things, however, I, th I think that it, it, some people will get into the New Age movement 
with the idea of you know finding relationship, which in a way, of course, is finding. I love how you just get, put that because that's what not what they're doing. They're trying to get some pussy. There's a big difference well, between find a relationship and just trying to get well, laid. Well, some, sometimes it tend to be just finding right. a one night stand, which is, of course, your language is quite accurate. I must. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's they're trying to appear desirable. And one of the ways to appear desirable yeah, to women is to be, in, to be spiritual. In stuff which is supposed to be spiritual. Yes, yeah, that's so a that, tricky one. That is, that is all true. And, and, and I'm sure that as quantum physics makes more inroads, there will be these quantum fakers. And I <laughs> quantum fakers. And I'm not trying to uh, focus entirely on the negative, but I'm trying to address what I know people in the general public, the issues that they have with, with folks that claim to be spiritual. It's like you'll, you'll run into a fake yoga person and you're like, oh my God, you know, the, the, the typically unique guy with his beads and his, his hemp sandals and you just want to... Punch them, right? You know what I'm talking about. But you know, you have to be, you have to be, you have to be <laughs> patient. Look at the, looking yes. at the other side. Well, I'll tell you a story. Okay. A uh, thief. This is a, a typical Hinduism teaching story. Okay. okay. So a, a thief comes to um, the master, spiritual mm -hmm. master, and the at the end of the night, spiritual master, of course, says, "Yeah, stay with me, no problem." So the thief is stealing this stuff, all the whole thing. So. The master opens the eyes and says, do you remember, did you remember to take everything? Because, you know, I really don't need that stuff over there either, so you can take that too. So the thief is caught, but he's very surprised. The master is not throwing him in right. jail or the thief is calling like... the police or anything like that. So he has become a little curious. So he lays things down. Why aren't you not angry? Because I'm stealing your stuff. Right. So the master says, oh, well, I, most of this stuff, look, I don't really need it. I still have attachments, so I keep them. So if you are taking them, it's okay. So the thief becomes a little more curious. And he says, well, since you don't mind me stealing it any time, why should I have to steal it at the end of the night? Let me stay with you for a few days, just watching your methods and what you do. Then I'll take them away at the end of the week. master says, yeah, fine, just stay with me. So the thief stays for a few days, and he, as he looks at the master and tries to do some of the stuff, he starts changing. By faking, initially he thought he'll just fake the master, because then he'll pick up the faking, and then his stealing capacity will increase manifold, because he will impress people by being a spiritual man. Right. People will have, he will have more access to more houses, and he will be able to steal more. That was the original idea. This is why he wanted to watch the master. But then as he did the things, meditate and sit and talk to people, after even a few days, <laughs> he started changing. So, hmm. the, so it can begin with a fake, and end up right. with something else. And of right. course, Master knew it all the time. So at the end of the seven days, Master says, okay, now you take this stuff and leave. Why are you prolonging your stay? And the, and the, and the fellow falls on the feet. That's an Indian idiom of saying surrender. says that. No, I want to learn what makes a you. I'm not interested in stealing the small stuff anymore. I want to steal the stuff that you are made of. So you see, so the... the where we can make even use of this fake is, is, is amazing. By being patient with the mm -hmm. people who are faking and just allowing them in the process, 
because although the initial um, uh, intention is superficial, but as you do them, consumption itself, consuming this very wonderful stuff, very wonderful behavior, will begin to give the idea, oh, maybe I can become a producer. These energies that I fake by imitating, if I actualize them, then they will actually produce changes in me that are profound. And um, we should open the gate for that rather than closing it by saying, oh, you are just a fake. Instead, you know, be a little more tolerant about them. So I, en I encourage, I encourage people using the quantum language, although they have no idea what they are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then, you know, you explain it one time, and they will become a little curious. And initially, their curiosity will be, "Oh, I can pick up a little more and impress people a little more." But they become a little more curious, a little more curious. One day, they will ask, "Well, can I actually start doing this stuff and really be creative?" Wow. Um, didn't Feynman once said, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't understand quantum mechanics? <laughs> Isn't that what Feynman said? Uh, well, one of them. Um, there are many, many sayings. Yes. Um, this could come from Niels Bohr, who said that if, we, if you thought you understood quantum physics, then probably you didn't understand it at all. So, you know, there are many, many, many sayings about quantum physics. Feynman said something like, nobody understands quantum physics once, once upon a time. He did say something like that. So uh, why do people say something like that? Because quantum physics, at some level, becomes so incredibly mysterious that in the affairs of matter, consciousness can be involved. This is just such an inherent mystery. Many people are very hard put to accept this kind of thing. So they would rather have nobody understands quantum mechanics than accept that Consciousness is needed to understand quantum mechanics. So these are the barriers of new thinking coming into the field of science. But you know what? Because experimentally, we are verifying the idea of non-local consciousness. We are verifying the idea that there really is a non-local connection between people. Or the way we cognize knowledge, namely consciousness, is actually non-local that verification will go a long way in changing the paradigm, changing the world. Here. How did yoga get discovered? How did they figure out that these poses and stretches could open up your mind and, 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 and change your consciousness? What, what, is, what is the history behind that? Well, at the original, if you read Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he just introduced a Sato Yoga as a way of finding a comfortable place to meditate. Originally, the idea was just to sit comfortably, and in order to sit comfortably in meditation for a long period of time, stretching helps. Mm -hmm. And then they discovered one very wonderful thing. As people meditated, the main job of meditation, they found, is to create gap between thoughts. You slow down your mental process. So once they discovered that the idea of slowing down the mental process helps enormously our creativity, our spirituality. Once they found that out, then they realized the next wonderful thing is that isn't yoga also a way of slowing down the body? Isn't pranayama a way of slowing down the breath and therefore all the organs? 
so the interest grew that yoga itself, hatha yoga itself, is not just stretching or just working on the uh, joints. It's also a way to slow down the body and therefore the mind. It's, it's, it's indirectly slowing down the mind because if the body is slow, mind will also be slow. By focusing on the poses and your breath and your intent. And doing, and doing it all slowly. Not so much like Bikram yoga because mm -hmm. that's a fast yoga. Right. But in the original way that yoga was done, that's quite slow. The slow yoga is actually even better than the fast yoga. Not that the fast yoga loses everything of yoga. Fast yoga is also good. But it, the slow yoga is even better because it slows down the body, slows down the mind, slows down the vital energies, slows down our emotions. It gives you a lot of breath between your fast, 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 go, go, go mind. And especially important for developing creativity because creativity is enormously dependent on that unconscious processing, doing nothing, do and be. So if we do yoga regularly, we really don't even need meditation regularly. We can just do yoga and get the benefit on the mind from yoga alone. That, that is, goes a long way for our creativity. There's a lot of uh, ancient texts that connect yoga with cannabis use, yoga with uh, hashish use and, and, and even eating cannabis. I'm what are not you, familiar with this one. You're not familiar with Oh, look at you, you sly devil with that <laughs> smile on your face. Someone's got a reputation to maintain. Uh, no, I'm, um, I'm, well, I'm, I don't really. No, not from that point of view, you know. Do you have any experience at all in uh, psychedelic I, I do. alkaloids I, I compounds? Do, I do a little. I certainly yeah. have tried. Um, I mean, you know, it's... it's, it's it's, it's it's in this state. It's it's not against the law. To oh, you mean marijuana? Yes. You have taken very mild one. So, I was going to ask you about. No, uh, no, it's not so mild. You know, mm -hmm. in, in, oh in yeah, one you tell time, me. In time and one time, uh, I got <laughs> what is called sansanim or something very. Sensimilia. Oh, look uh, at you, old school devil. Uh, exactly. So, so a friend of mine comes from uh, Washington with this. Oh, important those stuff, dudes in Washington right? don't play games. Exactly. Seattle's in the house. <laughs> so, 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 so we, we take this stuff with him and we put it in cookies, right? Oh, yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't take effect for, you know, 15 Hour and minutes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes. Nothing is happening. So we said, well, let's go to dinner. This is a classic story. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is indeed. So we, we go to dinner and all of a sudden I'm just eating my first course. I'm looking at the uh, looking at the uh, lights of the city from a window, and it starts exploding. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> so uh, my wife, who was the third person on the table, she um, also starts feeling something, and she has to go to the bathroom. So she goes, and the way back from the bathroom, she passes out. Whoa! So um, oh no! I have to lightweight. Go I, I have to go and claim that, okay, this is my woman, so my responsibility, <laughs> I, will, I will take her you home. you got to go claim her. <laughs> oh. well, I had to. And, and Those then kids I said, in aisle five. She didn't eat anything, so probably she got weak and therefore right. passed out. Don't, don't pay any attention to her. I'll take care of it. And this friend, oh, people from Washington, you have to watch them. This friend doesn't know me, doesn't know her, just walks away Completely innocently. Doesn't know any of us. It just left you guys there. Just left us guys there. Wow, what an asshole that guy is. Uh, no, did he know? Eventually he caught up and apologized. Oh, and eventually. 
Did wow. he know that you guys had taken pot cookies? What was it? A cookie or a brownie? What was it? He was taking with us. Oh, so he was probably high. He thought you were all going to go to jail. High, and he didn't want to be a part of that. He didn't want to get caught up in that, in that um, difficult situation. In the future, and for folks who have never heard me say this before, even though I've said it a million times, when you eat cannabis, it has a completely different psychoactive effect when, I, when you eat it. You're telling me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, when cannabis is processed by the liver, it produces something called 11 hydroxy metabolite, which is uh, approximately four to five times more psychoactive than THC. So that's why it has that insane effect. It's not just insane. It's an alien effect that you don't get when you smoke pot. Eating it is a very, very different experience, mm -hmm. and you could easily overdo it. And it looks yeah. like maybe your wife just got so hot, she's like, I'm just going to pretend to be blacked out, and it's way less stressful than walking around. Well, she did say that she was faking it a little bit. She was? <laughs> 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 but, but, the, but the point is that, that she did have to lie down. I mean, the, the right. stuff had an enormous effect. Mine too. I mean, oh, I yeah. was you know, oh, clearly listen. under it. And then driving under it, you know, this is why I don't really like the idea of um, legalizing marijuana in a sense because driving with marijuana, not marijuana, at least the oral kind, is very, very difficult. I mean, I tell really? you, that driving experience was the most difficult half hour in my entire life. I've never wow. had that. It, it just, it's impossible to gauge time, how time is going. Time gets <laughs> slow, time gets fast. <laughs> did, it change, right? did, did it change your ideas of the quantum world? Pot brownies? Well, like, well, well, I did connect it to quantum the world. The possibilities yeah. are impossible. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> this, the, this was before the before the uh, discoveries of quantum physics that I went through. But oh, really? This, this is pre-quantum physics? This is my pre-quantum era. This, oh. is, this is like early 80s. So in the early 80s, you were a standard uh, nuclear theorist, um, right? I was struggling. struggling. I, I already came out of bed, but I had not found, I had not discovered the new possibilities of quantum physics yet. Yeah, before you discovered all this stuff, you, you weren't really a happy guy, were you? No, I was a very unhappy guy. In fact, you know, my, my, uh, my change came only after I realized it. One day I was at a conference on nuclear physics, giving a paper. Erudite paper, of course, nothing to do with everyday life. And I give this paper with gusto. Nobody appreciates it, at least so I thought. And I think that the other guys, although they are talking about equally esoteric nonsense, but they are much more appreciated by the audience and at the party especially by the, you know, women, the fair sex. Oh, and women I like them better. You got jealous. I'm jealous. I'm just jealous, jealous, jealous and inadequate. And, and that way, the whole party, the whole evening, at 1 o'clock, I get disgusted with myself because all my thumbs are gone. You know, this... Tums? Digestive pills. Right. The, pills, uh, yeah. Heartburn pills. You eat a lot of Tums? Uh, well, in those days, Back yes. Then. <laughs> you weren't... You were upset. I'm upset. So I go outside. This this is at, um, on, the, on the Monterey Bay the place, the hotel is called Asilomar, and I have this ocean breeze hit my face and a thought, why do I live this way, this unhappy way? So I literally, I literally, avowedly was the practitioner of happy physics since then. Um, of course, I didn't find it immediately, the way to be happy doing physics, but eventually I found it. This consciousness physics is happy physics. Happiest use of physics that I ever hoped. 
So what what was this change though? You you're sitting out there, the the water hits your face, you, you're thinking, and what, what? I think it's an intuitive thought to change one's life. This is the kind of thing that happens all of a sudden, and you are not the same anymore. But so. you not you weren't like Descartes was visited by an angel in his dreams. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm well, saying? Like your change is like I just went outside and I'm like fuck this. You know, I were mean, you on mushrooms? <laughs> no, no, nothing. No, no drugs. Nothing. It, it, it was just the came. moment that it's the a moment drug... of intuition, a moment of moment of knowing Clarity. yourself because I was ready to look at myself. Hmm. You were ready to look at yourself because before you weren't. Before I wasn't. Before it didn't matter to me that the physics that I do has nothing to say about the life that I live. And all of a sudden, I wanted to really live a meaningful life. I wanted to do something that has meaning, not just, you know, ways to get ahead in my profession. So I wanted to integrate. I wanted to integrate my professional life with my daily life. How to love my wife, how to love children, how to get along with friends better. You know, live life, not just do physics formulas and publish papers and get promotions in the department. Wow. So it was just one moment you just had enough, and that's when you went into the woo-woo world. Well, not immediately. Not immediately. Slowly. Slowly. And a lot of struggle, a lot of experimentation, a lot of steps in between. It took a lot of time, too. This was 1973. My discovery came in 1985. So 12 years of... Quite a risky and adventurous path, but rewards came. Now, there's another thing that you said that I, I read that I found completely fascinating, is that you don't believe in free will. Well, I do and I don't. You do and I you don't. I do in the sense that, yes, creativity has a component of free will. It starts with the free will of the ego. Ego has one free will, which is a very crucial element of creativity, which is that at some point ego realizes that it really does not know, and therefore starts saying no to all conditioning, no to conditioned meanings, no to conditioned habits, no to conditioned patterns, no to conditioned behavior, and that's when we make room, that's when we have an open mind, we make room for learning new stuff, and that's when, when creativity can come to us. Before then, we start really thinking that we know it all with our reservoir of knowledge because I have a lot of expertise, therefore I know. But expertise don't bring us knowledge. Expertise just bring us a very special fraction of knowledge that is useful to solve certain problems that with given context. Because the context is known Therefore, the expertise always says, well, somewhere in my expertise there is an answer. And you develop a knack, a habit of finding that answer fairly quickly. And people, people admire that, of course. You go ahead in your society because you are a very efficient problem solver. But I, the, the thing that happens with open mind is that you realize that there is real-life problems are not given within context. The contexts are not given to you. You have to discover not only the new meaning, but also the new context of it. And this is what makes real-life problems very difficult. This is why, it's, you know, we are touching about this earlier. We don't learn that stuff. You know, this hunter-gatherer sitting in me, how to integrate that with the abstract thinker of today, um, this is not given in any book. This is not given within given context. 
So how do you get into this kind of thing? You have to use creativity. You have to become open first. That, okay, with this rational mind, which has only learned about abstract thinking, you are not going to integrate my emotions of the hunter-gatherer days uh, with the one that is today, who is all the suppressed emotions. We're mm -hmm. not going to integrate. We have to open up. We have to recognize our ignorance completely and invite creativity in our life. So that idea, that idea was the most important idea probably that eventually, you know, changed me as a person. Wow. So the the idea that – so in saying – I'm sorry, this is a hard, hard way to – hard way to – wrap your head around it, but in saying that you have free will and you don't have free will at the same time. So this you, is this is the free will. This is yes. the this is the free will. But in other things we what is our free will? What we have choices. What, what flavor of what flavor of ice cream would you like? Well left or right, good or bad, left you know, or right, cruel or kind. Bad, but all on the basis of what you know already. Right. Oh. Well, basis so, of what you know and what you've learned and yeah, what we yeah. admire is someone who's learned yeah, exactly. and someone who evolves. Exactly. Right? So, so on the basis of the known, all the answers are conditioned among the conditioned spectrum of knowledge. And that, that's really not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of freedom, but it's nothing to crow about. It's freedom. I mean, I've, nobody would give up that freedom if a tyrant comes and says that, no, you don't have the... You don't have the choice right. to choose ice, uh, the flavor of ice cream. Even I have, right. you have to, you have to take only one flavor. Of course, all of us would object, and immediately we know we don't want that. We become rebellions, but it's at a different order of magnitude than what is needed to discover really new stuff. That freedom, that freedom, which takes us to the really new. And there, the ego's free will is not very helpful. We have to open up to what in spiritual tradition is called God's will. Is that God separate from us? No, it's also our will in some sense, but coming from a higher consciousness. That's the difference, coming from that non-local consciousness. So real freedom of choice is beyond ego's free will to that free will that enables me to choose a creative answer. Well, okay. So real free will only exists sort of in the base animalistic world. And at the higher levels of consciousness, free will doesn't exist because you're connected to the collective consciousness. No. No. Still a little bit inaccurate. There is some accuracy in it. It, it. it does not exist necessarily also in the non-rational, in the, in the emotional, non-rational uh, experiences of the pre-rational era either. Okay. It's, it will, comes, to the, comes from the intuition, the next level. Right. Up. So it really is a higher function, except you are right in one sense. If we go outside, outside of the rational, Rational is our biggest enemy in the sense of free will in the higher sense. Rational is a bigger enemy of intuition than our emotions. Rationality is? Rationality. So the, so the idea that you can rationalize any evil or abusive behavior if you're the head of a corporation because it makes money for your... Right. That, that rationalization is our biggest enemy, even bigger than emotions in the sense, if you include emotions, to include positive emotions. Positive emotions are very helpful 
took to intuition. So how would you describe it, that rational thinking is the biggest enemy of what? Well, rational thinking can also be a friend. I don't right. want to sound right. overly no, I understand against what you're but rational emotion can be because you, you can mean rationalize rational, away everything. You mean rationalization more rationalization. than you mean rational thinking. Right, right. Rational thinking is good yes. generally, but we don't do it all, only with that. We can, right. we can justify, like today, scientific materialists. Uh -huh. They justify everything, all of their, um, all of the, even the worldview itself, right? They rationalize away. No, right. so there could not be spirituality. You know, there could not be God because everything has to be made of matter. What else can it be? That's their, that's their argument. Basic argument just boils down to this. What else can it be? There is only this matter, space, space time, matter, motion, world. There's nothing else. If you start with an assumption like that, that's what closes you completely. That's, that's not freedom anymore. You lose freedom because you are not able to suspend your belief system. If you suspend your belief system, many other experiences immediately find meaning. But the rational, this kind of rationality precludes emotions, precludes intuition. There's a problem with the definition. The the, the word rational, like you, like you're being irrational. You're not being ra have some rational thinking, and then rationalizing, which is a negative. You know, negative, rationalizing. Negative, the, it's, negative, it's a very strange. Negative, but it's it's the same <clears throat> idea, taking it too far. When you say rationalize, what we are really saying is that you are using rational thinking to where it does not belong. Right. That's rationalizing. We rationalize away where intuition belongs. We rationalize away where emotions belong. So instead, the new science, what the new science does, it, it, it admits it's a science of experience, not just uh, sensory experience that materialists uh, agree with. Uh, the new science says that our emotions our um, thinking and our intuition, all three are valid ways of knowing in addition to sensing. So we have four valid ways of, of, of knowing, physical, vital, mental, and supramental, the intuition. And when we employ all four ways of knowing, we go beyond the rational being. In the rational being, we go only the physical way of knowing and the mental rational, logical way of knowing. Michael Shermer has a great point, um, a great quote, rather, that the only thing smart people are better at is rationalizing their dumb ideas, <laughs> yeah. which is uh, that's a, a very funny thing when it comes to certain uh, certain focuses, certain things yeah. that uh, people do rationalize, yeah. you know, whether it's uh, yeah. environmental disasters or, you know, doing things in, in other countries that uh, are unethical or immoral. You know, the, the, the ability to rationalize and especially the ability to rationalize on a large scale like as a corporation is uh, it's a, a key problem with this civilization, isn't it? Key problem. Key problem. And how to get out of it? I have a whole method of getting out of it. How do we do it? I call it spiritual economics. The same idea like your, uh, the earlier story that I told you, the thief and the wise person. If we use that idea, if we feed people the spiritual stuff, uh -huh. As consumer good, right? Suppose you could go out in the market and buy happiness in the company of a sage whose very being makes you happy. I've met such people. Who? Where are they at? Can I well, meet them? What about me? Does that make you happy? You, you can you can meet <laughs> them, but it's a little bit difficult um, because they don't appear in everyday marketplace. Uh, not not oh, yet. Not no no not yet. Like Stephen Greer's. No, no not yet. Not yet. But out. but but we could manufacture these people. I think we now have the key. We know about creativity so much today that if people are 
investing, I think we really can inspire a lot of very capable people in a lifestyle which will generate happy people. Well, let me tell you something what we're doing because this is not something we ever set out to do. When Brian and I started this podcast three years ago, it was just on a laptop in my office, and we were just trying to have some fun. And we were just doing it just to be silly. We had done previous uh, things like that, webcasts, where we had done them uh, in hotel rooms and you know when we were uh, on the road doing stand-up. But over the course of three years, one of the things that's happened is people have told us that what they've gotten in this podcast, in this this communication, is they've gotten uh, an ability to interact or at least hear people interact that are like no one they know. So they're, 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 they're changing the way they think about life. They're, they're seeing that there's other ways to look at things. And in fact, a lot of your reality is shaped by the way you choose to view the world and that you can morph that and change that. And this podcast and again, we're not taking credit for it because I didn't know it was going to happen. It's had an amazingly profound effect, effect on people. Whereas I've talked to mm-hmm. literally hundreds of people that say the podcast changed their life yeah. and that once they started listening, they started eating healthy, they started exercising, they feel better, they think about things better, mm-hmm. they try not to be uh, a shitty person, they try to be positive, and they understand and feel the effect of this positive thinking. Yeah. I, I agree with you, and and again, I, I, we're not taking credit for this. This is something that just happened on its own. It just is a, a, a side effect of allowing people into your life and into your way of thinking. That but, openness, yes. That openness, that openness that says that well, okay, we have this habit, yes, and let's open it up, even though it's done only for a couple of hours, yes. Which reminds me that I should really make a call to my wife because. I told her five thirty. Yeah, well, we're going to wrap this thing up anyway. It's five thirty. I don't want to wear you out. Listen, <laughs> this is a, this is a, a beautiful conversation. Fascinating. You're you're a very uh, really really interesting and intelligent guy, and it's hard to follow a lot of what you say. Uh, to I, I think a, a lot of people are going to listen to this podcast three or four times. I think you did good. Because Thank you. What how how these things are actually depends a lot on the language you use. And it is a fact that we have a habit of using languages like mind and consciousness in a synonymous way. Yes. But science cannot be done that way. What happens then is we don't understand each other anymore. So here you are, not so much conversant with the new science um, vocabulary. And here I am, without teaching you any vocabulary, just get right into the discussion. And we had a dissonance of words for a while. I don't even think it was a dissonance, quite honestly. I think um, I was just trying to really uh, – I was trying to play the part of the person that is listening to this for the first time. I'm I'm aware of these concepts. I'm aware of your work, and I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about it. But it's a even for someone like me who's read at least a half a dozen books on this stuff. It's it's hard to wrap your head around. It's, it is hard. It is hard, and and it is also simple. Right. I often say that quantum physics is simpler than Newtonian physics, because Newtonian physics you get very quickly the idea that you know science can solve everything, and in 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 quantum physics. Because the choice is brought uh, into four from the beginning, immediately start relating that, hey, I know about choice. I know about, you know, this stuff is, science is giving us this stuff. Immediately mind mellows a little and the science become more humanistic. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, I can't, I can't let you go without this. Um, are you familiar with Dr. James Gates? No. He's a theoretical physicist um, uh, 
and uh, professor of physics at the University of Maryland um, with another guy named John. He's the John S. Toll Professor of Physics at the University of Maryland. He found self-correcting computer code in the equations of string theory. Um, I don't know if you've if you've you've heard about this. Uh, it was a really interesting, again, really hard to follow conversation that he had with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who uh, we've had on the show, and I, I talked to Neil about it. And even he was trying to wrap his head around the <laughs> what what this meant. But they found double and even self dual linear. <clears throat> excuse me, doubly even self dual linear binary code. Error correcting block code, <laughs> which was first invented by Claude Shannon in the 1940s, has been discovered embedded within the equations of superstring theory. You're laughing at this. It's almost like you, you knew. No, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because here we are talking mainly about quantum physics and consciousness, and here we go into such a sophisticated discussion of something that is remotely connected with quantum physics, of course, you know, yes. string theory. Yes, yes. But, um, you know, yeah, it could very well be. But I'll tell you something. The, the reason I lost interest in such details is is very simple. Uh, string theory is a good example of what uh, the idea that people propose when they say the word pseudoscience. Pseudoscience. Pseudoscience is that where theory and experiment are both not feasible aspects. It's just theory. Mm-hmm. This is a good example of just theory because string theory can never be verified in our experience. We just cannot do it. It's talking about too high an energy that we cannot simulate in the quiet in the laboratory nor in the high energy cosmology. So in other words, it's it's, it's really very, 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 very far out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here we are at once, the this rational culture that we call scientific materialism doesn't hesitate to talk about uh, string theory, which is highly abstract mathematical theory. Not that it's not interesting. As a mind game, certainly it's interesting. And then they object things like telepathy, which is very much human, where the objection, of course, is that it may not be quite apropos science because there may not be any good theory, there may not be any good data. So it's this very strange thing. We, we, we do, because it has mathematics in it, we call science which cannot be, ever be verified quite doable science. And How then, can it be science if it's not verified, but yet it's mathematic? If it's mathematics, That's what I'm saying. I agree. You agree with me. But see, this is what puzzles me, that, that the culture is so obtuse that they, don't has, they, they will never call. Like, there are many concepts like that, you know which, because of their mathematical nature, they're accepted part of science because they're mathematical, because mathematics is so vital, it is felt. So you're not interested in this because there's no, literally no way to know whether it's correct or whether it's just daydreaming. Right. So I'm what a vaguely, crazy way to make a living these I'm guys vaguely, I'm vaguely interested because of one thing. There is something good, very good about string theory because it does enable us to connect gravity to quantum physics. Okay. That that problem is not to be underestimated. But I don't want the solution to come in the form of a theory that can never be verified. Right. So people should recognize that science has two prongs. In fact, in my judgment, three. Theory, verification, experiment, and then technology. There's never going to be any technological application of something like string theory. Never? 
never. It's just too abstract taking place in places that are so remote from the human experience that technology, technological um, breakthroughs on the face of it is, you know, at least for high energy physics, you could always give a technological justification for in the form of weapons technology. Not particularly good, but weapons technology at least is a feasible offshoot of high energy physics. But these kind of stuff, you know, it it it's it, it's just be too far from my for my taste. We should concentrate instead of problems which can immediately be addressed, problems that has impact on who we are, what we are, what we are doing here, give us answers to real-life questions like how to run our life, how to run our society, how to run our economy. And we have the science at hand. That's what the new science is trying to mm -hmm. do. Instead, we have too much emphasis on things that have not much to do with us, the human condition. Superstring theory. Like superstring theory. Yeah, I, I've never been able to understand that, and I'm glad <laughs> that you couldn't understand it either, or that it can't be understood, or that at least it can't be verified. Yeah, but it, it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be understood because it can be verified. That's my simple proposition. Who needs to understand things? Clutter up your brain up for things which has no consequence a, in my life and cannot even be verified and can never be built never give rise to any technology that I can relate to. Well, there's so much crazy shit to concentrate on that is actually real. Right on. <laughs> Thank you, sir. It's been an honor to talk to you. I really, truly appreciate it. Um, what could people, if, uh, what books do you have out that you recommend that people could uh, pick up to uh, learn more about, uh, about some of your work? Well, the basic quantum physics stuff is best done in a book called The Self-Aware Universe. God is Not Dead is another God, one. God is Not Dead is another one. And the how quantum activism concept civilization has some of the consequences of this theory to society. Do you have a Twitter page? Yeah, of course. You do? Okay, yes, let yes, me yes, find yes, it. Yes, yes. Um, I didn't find it. <coughs> um, I'm going to go Swami. Let's see if I can find you on Twitter here so I can send people to it. Um, yes. Um, nope, that's not you. This is some crazy dude who's trying to get <coughs> Here is love, but innocent. Here is knowledge, but creative. Here is life, but that's not you, right? That's whack. You wouldn't write something that whack. Who is that guy? It is me. Is that you? <laughs> <clears throat> we'll find you. Um, do you do you know what your Twitter name is? <laughs> you don't know what it is? No. Does someone else do it for you? Yeah. Hmm. That's ridiculous. Um, there's a lot of you on there. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Amit Goswamis. Uh, it shouldn't be a whole lot. I mean, yeah. after all, how many? There's uh, a bunch of different ones on, on, on really? Twitter, believe it or not. Yeah. You probably got a lot of fakers. There's dudes who are, no. uh, yeah, you know what it is? You say no, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of fakers out there. Huh. Can I ask a quick no, question? No. Yeah. Uh, on the, on, you said earlier in the podcast that, you know, now because of lasers and stuff like that, you can uh, measure particles a lot more accurately. And that's how you found that, you know, particles actually are moving. Do you is the laser itself uh, is that an accurate tool? Has that been proven to be a hundred percent? Because what if it was just you know the laser saying that, but then down you know twenty years from now you find out oh it's just the laser. No 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 no. <laughs> it's a measurement of distance. So um, for a macro object mm -hmm. like a, we're talking about tables and chairs at that time, 
in between your looking and my looking, they move so very little. Right. It's very hard to observe with just ordinary way that we measure, like triangulating and all that. But with a laser beam, because lasers uh, travel in very, very close to straight lines, the diffraction effect is virtually gone. Mm -hmm. It's very good straight lines. So triangulation becomes very accurate because yeah. you really can go a long distance and... Even that without. small of a... Uh, even, even that, that small, even that small okay. measurement, okay. you can triangulate and therefore measure it. I found you on Twitter. Your Twitter handle is Quantum Activist. Good. Quantum Activist on Twitter. So, ladies and gentlemen, please follow him on Twitter. I'm going to write that right now. Follow. Okay. And uh, thank you very much. Really appreciate You're it. It's been welcome. a true pleasure thank to talk you, to you. It's I, been I really, a pleasure. really enjoyed it. And if you ever want to come back, if you have uh, anything that you want to promote, please uh, come back on. We would would love to have you. We'd love to talk to you some more. It's a real I pleasure. Would, I would love to be back. Thank you. Uh, if you go to audible.com forward slash Joe, you will get one free audio book and 30 days off of Audible, the premier audio uh, resource as far as like audio books and podcasts and comedy albums. It's a, a, a beautiful company and uh, they uh, have been supporting this podcast for a while so we appreciate them very much. Uh, Audible.com forward slash Joe. Go there, get yourself a free audio book. Is any of your books on, available on audio book? Um, I don't think that it's audio but, but they're all available in, as e-books in the, on the Kindle. Oh, they are? Mm -hmm. But nobody's done an audio version of it? I don't think anybody has done an audio version of hmm. it. In fact, if you can inspire some of these people to do it, I would love it. I'm sure they would love to. They, do they, it's on Amazon. Um, let's see if there's an audio version of it. Yeah, sorry, that's an inside joke. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. Dr. Amit Goswami. Amit? Amit. Am I saying it right? Absolutely. Uh, well, right. How do you pronounce it? Amit. Amit. Amit Goswami, the quant uh, quantum activist, just quantum activist on Twitter. Uh, thanks also to onnit.com. That's O N N I T. Go there, use the code name Rogan, save yourself 10% off any and all supplements. Um, uh, thank you to DeskSquad.tv. We got a, a big show, or he's got a big show coming up this Thursday. That's next, next week in, it's already yeah. past Thursday, it's Friday. <laughs> next Thursday in uh, San Diego at the American Comedy Company, a fantastic little club in San Diego. It's Yoshi Obayashi, Billy Bonell, Jason Tebow. Uh, Tony Hinchcliffe and Brian Redband. It's a hell of a show, San Diego. Go on down. And then tonight at the Ice House in Pasadena, 10 p.m. show, Brian Redband, Tony Hinchcliffe, Maddie Kirsch. Who, who else? Uh, you caught me off guard. And uh, me? Sam, Tripoli, Sam Tripoli, Josh Fadum, Tony Hinchcliffe, Johnny Pemberton. And me. Subscribe to the Death Squad on the podcast, uh, Death Squad podcast, rather, on iTunes, where you can uh, listen to uh, excellent podcasts like uh, Kevin Pereira's. Uh, where's he going? Point. He had to make a phone call. Oh, up there. <laughs> there ain't nothing out there, man. Um, uh, Kevin Pereira's Pointless. Um, uh, what is. Um, we have Triple X Squad, Muff Said. And live shows in like the Ice House tonight. Ian Edwards, right? What uh, is Ian he, Edwards? Ian's preposterous preposterous session. By the way, he was on Conan Wednesday. So uh, go to uh, Conan's uh, website and check his set out Wednesday. Beautiful. He had a really good set. All right, folks. Uh, we got a hell of a week coming next week. Uh, this podcast keeps rolling, you dirty bitches. We stop for no man. 
Uh, we stop for no quantum theory. Uh, we got Monday. We got Boss Rutten in the fucking house. Uh, Tuesday, Scott Sigler, who is a, a, a horror author. And then uh, uh, we're working on someone Wednesday. Hopefully, I'm going to be able to get uh, Justin Wren. He's the white guy that's been uh, working to save the pygmies in Africa. I don't know if you see the video of the first time they ever saw a white guy. and they touched him. He's a former MMA fighter who's now living in the Congo <laughs> trying to help pygmies. I uh, heard that amazing. was fake. Oh, no, it's not that, fake that, at all. Those photos? I heard those were fake photos. Oh, no, this is in a photo it was really recent. Okay. I think you're thinking of something different. Yeah. It wasn't a photo. It was a video, and it was like okay. staged. Apparently, this is not. This is modern iPhone footage of him in the Congo wow. meeting these pygmies, the little boys, the little kids, like they had never seen a white guy before. Uh, all right, you fucks. We love the shit out of you, and uh, keep it together, bitches. And we'll see you on Monday.